Giant Robot FM, your home of all things mecha, be it giant or otherwise. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. The awaited day is here. We are covering G-Savior proper, and I could not be more excited. I feel like we've generated a lot of conversation online, and I hope our current and future coverage will continue those conversations. PMC, how are you? Uh, Give me your Mark Curran hype levels. I'm extremely excited because I think... In, in like much the same way that us streaming and talking about War for Earth, I hope encouraged people to think about War for Earth with a more open mind. I am really hopeful that we are situating G Savior in a proper context. We're not we're not here to tell you that G Savior is like a secret hidden masterpiece, but there's a lot of internet uh, there's a lot of bad internet out there that just thinks it's you know drivel or trash, and that's just not that's not right. You know there there's there are more nuanced uh interesting things to say about this movie and we are here to say those things and i am super excited now pmc i usually don't do warm-up questions with you but you've dipped your toe into late uc stuff do you care to enlighten viewers about that yes or i should say listeners not viewers listeners so i've been challenged by uh a speedrun friend who i met through speedrunning g savior for the ps2 uh to eventually make my way over to playing victory gundam for the Super Nintendo, which has a fan translation. Now, what that means is that, I, well, I, I got to get caught up on late UC. Uh, and I, I had made my way up through Unicorn and then kind of fell off after that. I have now watched Twilight Access, and I'm thinking about watching Narrative, which just actually came on Crunchyroll uh, conveniently for me. Uh, I think Twilight Access was fine. It's super short. It's like 25 minutes, and it's more of a vibes piece than anything else. It's not like a real a real, you know, narrative or, or lengthy yarn, but it, it was pretty fun. Got some really cool mechanical designs. Uh, I, I enjoyed it just fine. I don't know why it's 42 on the, the Reddit, the Gundam Reddit list. That's very strange <laughs> to me, but, uh, you know, so I, I hope to continue my, making my way through that. Uh, also, you know, of course, meeting space queen, Emily's challenge to actually watch victory Gundam, which she says no one seems to do. And she's right about, you know, I kind of want to get to it. So, We'll see. I, I will I will provide updates, hopefully. Awesome. I'm looking forward to hear it. But of course, we are not alone. We are joined by longtime friend, collaborator, and guest, Andy, aka Engine Veer Online. Andy, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you guys, and I am pleased to be here. Thrilled to have you. Before we jump into some warm-up questions, you want to give listeners your like rundown, like what who you are in line. Uh, of course, I am at Engine Veer online, uh, just Veer regularly. Uh, I am your resident Big O expert. I run the BigOarchive.com, and otherwise, you'll see me just complaining on Twitter if I'm not talking about horror and Star Trek. That's that's kind of it, really. That's a, that's what people can expect. That's a good. That's a good set of hobbies. Good set of passions. Now, Andy, last time we had you on, which I believe was for episodes seven and eight of The Big O, you talked about your plan to watch Gundam Wing for the first time in the new year, that new year being 
2023. And January has come and gone, and you now have 49 episodes of the After Colony timeline under your belt, plus Endless Waltz. Tell us about that. Also, don't forget the G-Unit manga as well. Oh, yeah, I do have those my... three volumes as well. <laughs> those, those mecha designs are sick. They are quite good. Uh, I need to go back and read it, honestly, because I didn't realize that... What is that? Some of the mobile suits from Wing actually do show up. Like, I think the uh, Mercurius actually shows up in G-Unit. I didn't know that at the time. So I was like, okay, I should probably go back and read that with better context. Uh, to answer your question, though... 49 episodes and one movie later with the After Colony. Well, not After Colony. No, it is After Colony. It's After War. That's Gundam X. Uh, the new mobile report, Gundam Wing. As much of a hot take as this might be, Gundam Wing is, at this point in time, having not rewatched Turn A and Gundam X yet, uh, my top favorite piece of Gundam media in the entire franchise. Uh, <laughs> Woo! That is a hot right. take. Turn, like I said, Turn A and Gundam X might change things. I remember, it's been nine years since I've seen Gundam X last, but I remember it being absolutely fantastic. Uh, but Gundam Wing was, as I said on Twitter, it, it was everything that I had ever come to Gundam wanting. And I finally got it, and I got it presented in the way I wanted it presented. Just the complete over-the-top, I don't want to call it melodramatic, but highly dramatic, semi-nonsense that is <laughs> Gundam Wing. Uh, I loved just about every second of it. It was, an, it was a thrilling watch, to say the least. Did you watch it dubbed or subbed? I watched the Japanese audio, correct. Okay, okay. Uh, so you haven't um, exposed yourself to the beauty that is... Who, PMC, who is it? Who's Trey's voice actor? Oh, David, David K. K. That's David the, K. You're right. Mega, Megatron right. from Megatron, Beast Wars. Uh, the <laughs> Sashomaru from the Inuyasha dub. You know, several other iconic roles of the era. All right. Now, I, I switched back and forth a little bit from dub to sub. Mm-hmm. But it's just like, nah, this ain't it. I'm sorry. I, I, I know that that's kind of a thing for folks who actually did grow up on Toonami. I was never allowed to watch most things on Toonami. And so it's important to those folks, and I get it, and I respect that, but it, just, it doesn't work for me. No, I can respect that take. I've heard by all accounts, and I've listened to a, f- a fair bit of the Japanese dub, that it's quite strong throughout the entire run of the show. It is. As much as, as, as endearing as the dub is to me, I can admit that it is flawed in a lot of respects. <laughs> now shifting gears let's talk uc after you drop that t- hot take i want you to drop another because i know you're one of the most vocal g savior fans online which by the way <laughs> is awesome we need more people spreading the good news and the good word about mark curan i gotta ask when did you first watch g savior and was it love at first sight so it's it's good that you asked it um because I was actually on Facebook three days ago, and in my memories for nine years and three days ago was the moment I watched G-Savior for the first time. And this is my three-sentence review at the time. So, G-Savior. Not completely awful, but entirely not good. Since then, uh, I guess so. I guess to answer your second question, no, it really wasn't love at first sight. <laughs> Uh, admittedly, I didn't really watch it 
that closely. Uh, and nine years ago, I was just getting into Gundam for the first time. That's when I watched, at the time, what would be a little over half of the franchise just in one year. It's like, you know what, I'm just going to watch Gundam. And then I did. Right, no, it wasn't love at first sight, but I kept, I kept thinking about it. And I never kind of stopped thinking about it. It never really left my head. But the thing I need to come clean on, besides that I'm not really being a G-Saber fan until just now re-watching it and realizing that, no, this is actually quite, quite good, actually. There is a very specific subset of Gundam fans who get very upset when you remind them that G-Savior is canon. To... Oh, they get so upset. <laughs> and knowing that, that's why for so many years, I went back into my Twitter uh, profile. I think I was th doing stuff like this all the way back in like 2016, 2017, just saying stuff like, oh, don't don't remember, uh, don't forget that uh, G-Savior's canon. I, I brought that up and I was vocal about it just so I can make those people mad. You know, the, the reason why I made that alt- Twitter profile at is G Savior Canon with the sole tweet being yes was for that purpose. But oh, that was you. That's all you retweet that. <laughs> that was me. I was wondering who made that account. Uh, but since the, like I said, since last week when I watched the movie again, uh, since nine years ago, like I said, that was that was kind of my eyes opening for the first time. It's like you know what this has. This may not be great. There's no robot jocks, right? But this is a solid movie with some pretty good designs and some actually great robot action. So we've come full circle, and uh, it only took nine years, but we got there in the end. I feel like a lot of people are coming around on G-Saver, and not just because we, we were talking about it online, even though my perspective is a little bit clouded by that. I think a lot of people love it in an ironic way, but I also think a lot of people love it in a non-ironic way. There's something like so comfy about it which is appropriate it's like a hallmark movie and i know that is like a cliche <laughs> thing to say considering that brennan elliott has starred in scores of hallmark films but it has those vibes especially if you grew up in the 90s which we'll talk about yes no it, i see what you mean because it kind of does have that like the cartoons are over saturday morning and this is like the movie they show on upn 69 after Yu-Gi-Oh or whatever is over it kind of has that like, you've already had your second bowl of cereal, kind of, yeah. this is the movie we're watching kind of vibes. I totally understand. It has, like, Sunday early afternoon vibes. Like yeah, that You're too. sitting on the couch, chilling, nothing's on TV, you're flipping through, you land on Sci-Fi Channel, and you go, you know what, I'll watch this. Yeah. And then it has, it'll have that special place in the, the back corner, the cobwebby part of your brain for the rest of your life. And then you have to mourn for the rest of your life because there is only there's such a finite amount of G Saver material to consume. I know, and what an absolute shame! What an absolute clown world we live in. <laughs> I, I'm I'm guilty of like coming up with memes on the spot during records, but when you said the G Savior is canon, I'm thinking of like Brutus and the other senators stabbing Julius Caesar, and like <laughs> right as he puts the dagger, and instead of saying instead of Caesar saying et tu Brute, it's uh, Brutus saying. G-Savior's cannon, and just, like, <laughs> digging the knife in. Mm. I have to see if I can workshop that. <laughs> now, I want to say at the beginning, so this was, this was a tough decision to make, but I made it anyway. We've only covered so many films. Really, we've covered one film on Giant Robot FM proper, which is Cuckoo's Stones Island, which we did in one episode, about two hours long. 
talk about a vibes piece, PMC, but I think that also falls into that category. And I was working on the notes for G Savior. My notes have been getting longer, period. It, it, it's turn A has warped my mind. And if I take too long in the notes, the, the notes kind of get out of control, um, as PMC can attest to. And I got basically halfway through G Savior. And then I messaged PMC and I messaged Andy. I'm like, you know what? We got to do G Savior justice. We got to split this into two episodes. Um, for the listeners at home, my rule of thumb as a podcaster, even though we've recorded some episodes with record long lengths is I feel like a podcast discussion loses structural integrity after like two and a half, three hours. And I worried, (laughs) I got, I got, I got like pretty far in my notes. I'm like, you know what? We're looking at potentially a four hour episode here. So let's split this into two. So this is your announcement at the start of the podcast. We will be getting roughly 43 minutes into G Savior. We're going to get to right as they blast off into space, which is very appropriate, which we'll talk about. And then we're going to pick up next week with the back half of the movie and Andy will be joining us again and PMC will be there and I'll be there. So you'll get your full dish of G Savior giant robot FM content at your dinner table. Talk about a tortured metaphor. (laughs) Eat your veggies, eat your G Savior. It's good for you. Mm -hmm. Now, before we jump into our discussion proper, PMC, it's been too long. Um, We've been in the desert for a while because at long last, we finally have a dank-ass, back-of-the-box summary from an ancient home video release courtesy of Bondi Entertainment circa 2002, um, which I actually own a copy of this. Um, So would you do us the honor of reading the G-Savior synopsis? This is very fun, this back-of-the-box. It does, in fact, have the Big Bang 20th Anniversary logo, and it says as the title, rather than like, like a film tagline or, you know, something descriptive of the movie. It just says, The 20th Anniversary Gundam Movie, uh, which is, like, an interesting way to pitch it, especially circa 2002, because at that point, you know, I guess Gundam has been booming for a little bit in, you know, in America. But, like, (laughs) to to show up in the next year and be like, ah, yes, the 20th anniversary feels a little weird. But, you know, it it is what it is, right? So... The 20th anniversary Gundam movie, Universal Century 223. The Earth Federation has collapsed. Now the Earth is ruled by the Congress of Settlement Nations, or Consent. But a group of rebels, with the reluctant aid of former Consent officer Mark Kern, discover a secret that could change the future of mankind forever. But Consent doesn't want this secret to get out and they will go to any lengths including starting a war to stop it their only hope is a new weapon the g savior i know we pointed out before but the logo for g savior the movie circa 2002 is so godzilla 2000 with the green it's so even though this movie came out kind of in kind of in 2000 it's so 90s it's so 90s. That yeah, green? It definitely has like the feel or even like the feel of like a 90s movie being published on DVD for the first time kind of thing. Like this is what my my like Alien Trilogy box set would look like, you know, the title there or something. What's the stupid name Fox made up for like the Quinn Trilogy, the four movies? Oh, I don't know. See, I'm I'm thinking of the the video game for PlayStation and Saturn. Um I, there probably is an for, sure. for that includes Resurrection. 
Andy, you're you're a big not only are you a big G Saver fan, you're a big fan of the American Godzilla film, right? Uh, I am, yes. That I love that Godzilla design. Oh, it's I think I've always been like good with it. I think as even as a kid, you know, growing up on sci-fi channel reruns of basically every Showa movie, when Roland Emmerich's Godzilla came out, I'm like, yeah, I'm still okay with this. And I think when I saw it for the first time, I was okay with it. And I was good with the movie. And really just over the next 15, no, 20 some odd years, I've only begun to love that movie more and more. It's uh, Here's another hot take for everyone listening. Uh, Roland Emmerich's Godzilla, if I'm only picking Godzilla movies and not just Toho as a whole, I mean, it's in my top five favorite Godzilla mm. movies. It's, it's Sure, some of that might be nostalgia, but honestly, I've written about it. And it's like, there's a lot to this film, whether intentional or not, and uh, it's yeah, it's one of my favorites. I have it on Blu-ray of all things too. Roland Emmerich is a great guy to bring up for this podcast because when I think of of Kenneth Welsh, the first thing I think of is a Roland Emmerich movie. Of course, The Day After Tomorrow. Ah, that's a good pull. I want to correct myself on the spot in the live recording. I meant Godzilla 1998. Godzilla 2000 is another film. But you all knew what I was talking about. I'm talking about the American Godzilla film with that bright green font. Yes. All right, let's jump in. G-Savior opens with a rousing credit roll. Cast and crew names appear as the camera travels through space, boosted by Debdi and Fabre's orchestral score. Now, Andy, I know you're a big TNG and DS9 fan, um, so I got to ask, does this feel like 90s Trek to you? So I was so thrilled to see that that was in our notes for this podcast because I kid you not, when the credits started rolling, when I was watching this a week ago, that was the exact first thing I thought of was just this is absolutely so Star Trek. It's, it's really, it's the horns and the flute that come in a little bit later. It's just like, this is it. This is absolutely some Deep Space Nine level uh, Star Trek score. Uh, theme song, however you have it. Uh, it's, it's good. I, I unironically love that. And really about half the score is also kind of on that same level. It's a pretty good score for just kind of what we would associate as being kind of a B movie. Yeah, it's also very, like, disney light. Like, I feel if I was walking through Disneyland and, like, arrived at a new a ride or, or amusement, th- like, this music would be playing out, uh, like, out of the speakers. <laughs> I'm looking up now, just because we haven't talked about this on the pod yet. He did, we mentioned that he did, Debney did a few Star Trek episodes as composer, but I never actually mentioned oh. which episodes. Uh, he did two episodes of DS9, both season one, I believe. The Negus and Progress. Yes, both season one. I, I remember the Negus. I don't necessarily remember Progress off the top of my head. And he also did one episode of TNG. Hmm. Uh, he did the Pegasus, which is a season seven episode. <laughs> so, as a short aside, when when someone when you're gonna bring up sci-fi science fiction and the pegasus to me of course my mind goes to battlestar galactica first but Mm. never mind (laughs) the other surviving battlestar of course progress is actually an episode that i remember i I double checked this but it's actually an episode i remember because it's the one where where kira has to talk the bajoran guy into moving off the moon because bajoran wants to 
blow it up for energy or something. I nod unknowingly because okay. I haven't made it that far into TNG. Yeah. Or wait, did you make TNG seven. or DS9? Oh, I meant TNG. Oh, okay. DS9. DS9 I said season I one of DS9, right? Yes, that I've watched. Uh, okay, yes. okay. That's getting my wires crossed there. Oh, wait, that's a really good episode of yeah. DS9. Yeah. That's yeah. a stellar episode. That's a good one. That's a good one. You know what doesn't feel right here, though, is the um, the one thing that feels very aggressive is that G Savior blows up the logo <laughs> after yes. it appears, which is like a very, I mean, it's not uncommon, <laughs> but it feels out of place here relative to everything, because everything else is very much 90s TV sci-fi, uh, which I say, you know, without judgment, whereas the blowing up the logo thing feels more animated, like, a, like I'm in a cartoon, and maybe that crossing of wires is intentional. Mm. Yeah. G-Savior came out at the perfect time, though, to really capture that 90-ness in a bottle. Yes, it came out at the end of the 90s, though. But if, you know, Andy mentioned Battlestar earlier, and if you think about the cultural change that occurred after 9-11, I feel like something like DS9 or Voyager compared to Battlestar Galactica represent that really well. Or even Enterprise. Uh, Enterprise is definitely in conversation with the quote-unquote war and terror, and that like 90s optimism, for better or worse, is like would have been non-existent in this film had G-Saver for some reason come out in 2005. Mm, definitely. Cut to the narrator who introduces viewers to the universal century. I was really curious. I looked up the narrator in the credits. I could not find a name. I always talk about the narrator. I, I think he's fine. He's probably at the level of like Cork, Kirk Thornton for me, if you're the, considering the origin dub. But I don't think he holds a candle to Campbell Lane or Ross Douglas, the, the English narrators of Gundam Wing and First Gundam, respectively. They just ooze gravitas, and I feel like this dude is very perfunctory. He gets the job done. It feels very artificial, like he's trying to capture that artificial sense of wonder. It just doesn't completely do it for me. Yeah, I, I agree that it's it's effective. Like he reads it. I understand that he's a you know um, uh, omniscient narrator. Like I get it. But right, there is something the bravado you know is kind of missing from it. But it's not bad. Campbell Lane's my number one. I would have him read the proverbial phone book. I love his voice. Mm. Rest in peace. Uh, I would love to see him do more work. So then cut to Earth. On the seafloor of the Atlantic Ocean, near the Hydrogen Sea Lab, a bulbous mobile suit harvests minerals. Its pilot, Mark Curin, codenamed Rover One, reports back to the lab that his descent was successful. The most 90s-ass workplace banter ensues. <laughs> All right, so he's this bulbous mobile suit I was referring to. It's called the Guppy. I need to hear your Guppy thoughts. I am pro-Guppy. I think that I think that this movie opens... There's some things that happen in this movie which are very maybe atypical for Gundam, and I think one of those things is that we the first mobile suit we see is a you know, is a machine for labor for doing some kind of particular work as, as opposed to, right. you know, it, like, and, and that's like, a di I feels like a different tradition of suits. Now Gundam in its fiction has a tradition of labor where they talk about how Zaku's used to be for labor. But when you meet the Zaku, it's not doing labor, it's doing war. You know, it, it creeps into your, your eyeball by sliding up the screen and it's ready to kill you. Uh, 
And in contrast, the guppy is not doing that. The guppy is on the ocean floor doing some regular ass work. Some some regular ass work that we're not even clear what it is. <laughs> oh, do we want to talk about this now? Do we want to launch it? This is this, I have a note on this. I, yeah, I I'm really curious about this PMC. So okay. I think you're going to answer several of my questions with your response. Okay. All right. So Mark Mark Hearn, God bless his heart, mentions that he's going to check out some smokers. Some smokers. And the first time I watched this film, I made note of it, and I said, "Well, they're going to explain what this is, so I won't look it up." <laughs> And then I and then I'm watching the film again, and I said, oh, "No, they never explain this. They never. This never makes any sense. What what is a smoker?" And the answer is actually that uh, a smoker it refers to types of hydrothermal vents uh, on the ocean floor. There are things called white smokers and black smokers uh, that mm. indicates proximity to sort of certain release points of certain you know uh, tectonic events. Uh, you know, of just sort of, you know, things being released. It's superheated water that's coming up. And basically, kind of how close it is to uh, certain things depends on whether it is black, which means it's right near it, or or, or white, which is further away. Uh, in So I think, I, and, and so I feel confident in saying that it's referring to this type of thing because when the shockwave happens that knocks the guppy over, there you can see some, uh, you know, just some like straight up vents just shooting up. Uh, that are not the shockwave. And so I think what is going on is I think that their research is relying upon heat-adjacent agriculture. Because if you remember later in the film, Mark mentions that not only the bioluminescence isn't just a source of light, but also a source of heat, which is important for whatever agriculture thing they're doing. And so on right. my, my assumption is that the, the here, the agriculture... Uh, that they're doing is with heat, not with light. And so that's why the smokers are important because those are sources of heat on the ocean floor. Hmm. Interesting. That is entirely clear to me. Okay. <laughs> I usually leave those notes for like PMC to pick up because I'm like, I'm listening and I'm like, all right, yeah, smokers. Yeah, PMC will feel that one for me. I mean, you could also just Photoshop in like, I don't know, your, your stereotypical art house Frenchman. Smoking a cigarette on the ocean floor, if you want. Sure. Uh, I, leave, I leave it up to you. Now, to answer your question also, I am pro-guppy. It, uh, it kind of is like a big daddy mm. with like a 1910 camera lens for its entire face. So it's got all the multiple um, focal lengths and lenses and whatnot. I say I'm pro guppy. I guess I'm kind of just warm towards it. Uh, it's not a bad suit at all. It's it's not uh, as I think pointed out in either the uh, history episode or some of the notes that have been shared on Twitter. It was not an Okawara design, which explains a little bit. But because of that, it does just it is unique among the other G Savior suits, which I think is a good thing going for it. Yeah, I'm not going to be the contrarian here. I like the guppy very much. Actually, it will be one of the few mobile suits we talk about in this part of the episode, or this part of our G Savior coverage, because we're not we're not going to see too many others in the first like 45 minutes of this film. <laughs> but it's a, it's a very neat design, and unlike a lot of the suits, it was made further into production. The Okawara designs were made really early on for that original trailer. Um, and were iterated upon, but the guppy was made by an American artist, like Andy mentioned, Kevin Ishioka. It's very utilitarian. It's very functional. It's got a 
built-in seismometer to measure tectonic movement. Mm -hmm. And like these details contribute to this effect where it doesn't feel especially toyetic. And I know I'm playing with fire when I make a statement like that, mm. but I feel like Ishioka did not have model kits in mind when he made this. I can't imagine that like Bondi was breathing down his neck. Remember, Ishioka was in America at the time. They were in the trenches making this film. I don't think anyone had any... I don't think the drive was there to make model kits of the guppy. And no model kits, in fact, exist of the guppy. Like, as a point of comparison, just consider any of the underwater mobile suits from First Gundam. Like the Zagok or the Gog. Those look like fucking toys. <laughs> I feel like the guppy, yes, it could be a toy, but I feel like it does have an element of, and again, I'm playing with fire with this term, an element of verisimilitude that perhaps some of its other peers don't have. Like, it looks like a piece of actual tech that can withstand pressure at great depths. It reminds right. me a bit of the Alvin, which was a... If you've ever seen the Titanic, I'm sure all of you have seen the Titanic. Um, you've seen the Alvin before. It's that deep ocean submersible that explored a lot of things, but specifically the Titanic. And I feel like... And also, I feel like James Cameron's The Titanic as a film loomed large over so much of American Japanese pop culture that I might I feel like there's some connective tissue there. But so you actually look at the Alvin, it does have a very similar um like viewing scope um to analyze what's going on around it. And to your point about it being uh, an American designer for this robot, of course, which should be obvious to everybody, Japanese design language and American design language for robots, giant or otherwise, is very, very different, very unique from one another. Uh, I think also with the whole model kit angle, model kits still really aren't a thing inherent to like American manufacturing. Like, yeah. Of course, we have Revel and they do cars and jets and submarines and real things, but... I mean, outside of some unique use cases, like maybe some Batman mechs or the, the X-Wing and all the um, Rebellion fighters from Star Wars, yeah, America just doesn't really bother with mecha kits. And so that may also have played into the design uh, considerations for the Guppy not being needed to be made into a model kit. Yeah, I feel like... I know car culture exists in Japan, but I feel like oh, sure. when you're talking about model kits in America or something equivalent to mecha model kits in America, it would be cars or train sets. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Also, speaking of James Cameron, Ishioka did work on the first Avatar film, which totally tracks. Um, Ishioka didn't design the mechs in that film, the first Avatar. He only worked on the first one, by the way. He did not work on uh, the most recent sequel. But... It feels, the guppy feels like like it could fit right in with the mechanical designs featured in that film. Like, it's not particularly militarized, but it, the tech is very similar to the tech that the Marines use in that movie. Mm -hmm. At least I think the Marines, you know, human-ass soldiers. Right. I definitely find my, you know what else we should compare it to? This might be a fun side-by-side -side to do, uh, is the guppy and the submersible from the Big O. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It wouldn't be called a boat if it could go underwater. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of episodes, that rule. Yeah, very right. good. Back at the lab, Philippe and Daggett, Mark's work buddies, pick up a signal. 
Something must have hit the surface, Daggett explains, but we don't know what it is. Mark, classic Mark, isn't concerned. He continues with the winching process. Minutes later, they lose communication with him after a cloud of dirt and debris kicked up from the seafloor envelops the guppy, knocking it off balance. Fortunately, Mark's fine. After losing power, he reboots the life support systems and turbines. But Mark's surprised. The seismometer didn't pick anything up. All right. I would be remiss if I did not mention the interface situation going on in this workplace. Uh, We have a classic array of tubes, of big old tube monitors, which, of course, (laughs) given the fact that some of the sets are likely, you know, borrowed from other productions, repurposed, reused, some of that could be just, you know, what they had on hand. Uh, but I also think that, you know, I, I want to believe that it's intentional, uh, that this is the kind of thing that they're using, you know, that they're really not on to flat screens. And you could also insert into the fiction other thoughts about that as well. You know, like, could it be the case that deep sea, uh, you know, labs need tubes that the, you know, that flat screen monitors wouldn't work or something? I mean, I believe the the, the last tube monitors still in production today in 2023 are for, I think, medical applications or, or something like that. I was recently talking mm. with someone about this. So, you know, it could be the case that in the Universal Century 223, maybe they still need to make tube monitors for <laughs> deep sea bases. You know, wouldn't that be something? Maybe the Universal Century isn't that bad. Tell me, no, maybe it's not <laughs> as bad as you made it out to be. <laughs> Uh, in in universe explanations, whether they you know track or not, yeah, they are really fun to think about. I think the classic example for me, and one my brother likes to talk about, is when a Vegeta and Nappa first show up in Dragon Ball Z, and their armor and their hair are different colors than they are for the rest of the entire franchise. Obviously, that's just miscommunication between. Um, whoever does Dragon Ball Z, whose name I forgot, and the art department. Because I think it's, yeah, I will be corrected if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure there is a classic example of just those two people not communicating. So obviously they just colored it wrong. But the in-universe, uh, Kira Toriyama, thank you. Yeah, there you go. Uh, <laughs> uh, the in-universe explanation that we've kind of come up with is like, well, what if the atmosphere just refracted light differently? Mm. You know, what if, what if their atmosphere just had different gas compositions in it? Or their sun was a different color and the light that got through was a different wavelength than I think kind of the, well, everything but kind of blue that we get, which is why the sky is blue because that's what refracts. I believe that's right. And so it's like, yeah, they could have just showed up as a different color because that's how the atmosphere portrayed their colors because it was a completely alien planet. But so to your point, right, sometimes I like errors or just... Uh, production issues like that do bring up uh, important insight or important creative moments for the audience. And that is good. Speaking of the production process, I would kill for a behind-the-scenes documentary chronicling the production of G-Savior. You know, like the one we got for episode (laughs) one, where you see like the real grime, where you see like people struggling to make this film? I want one for G-Savior. But unfortunately, that DVD is bare-bones giving us the weirdest, a lot of information has surfaced uh, to me about the whereabouts, like the uh, the origins of some of the, the production material that's included on the DVD disc. Like, they don't explain it, they just drop some pieces of art, and I assume those pieces of art were from, like, 
early pre-production sketches of what they imagined Cheese Savior to be. But it turns out they just grabbed the art from the radio drama CDs. I guess uh, the people like Polestar is like, yeah, what can you, what art can you give us? And uh, Sunrise <laughs> was like, yeah, just take this, these, take these things. We have no idea what it is. He doesn't have long to ponder that question before a distress call comes in. Mayday, Mayday, Mayday. This is Congressional Pilot Lieutenant Jim Holloway requesting immediate search and rescue. Pick up. Daggett informs Mark that one of the objects that hit was a suit. Much to Lieutenant Holloway's relief, Mark opens up a comm channel with him. Mark tells the distressed pilot he's not fully equipped for recovery. Float your beacon for a professional search and rescue. After a bit of cure and wisecracking, the gravity of the situation sets in. Daggett tells Mark that Holloway was outperforming a debris intercept on the space station when he dropped out of orbit. It's a miracle the guy survived re-entry. Philippe confirms. He's in bad shape, Mark. Breaches are popping up all over Holloway's suit as water starts to spill into the cockpit. And if that wasn't enough, his oxygen levels start dropping. With a degree of reluctance, Mark goes in. All right, right at the beginning, I need a temperature check on Mark. How do you feel about um, the beautiful, the mercurial, the <laughs> the iconic Mark Curran? Well, I honestly think that, well, I'll go a little bit further. Uh, I think, honestly, opening with a rescue with him is a good look, you know, because that does kind of show, like, I appreciate his reservation because it's like, okay, I could screw this up. I'm not prepared for this. If it's not an emergency, then let the professionals take care of it. Right? It's kind of a very Roger Smith attitude. Mm. Uh, I think, you know, this should be left up to the professionals. But then to see him just realize the gravity of the situation, I think, as you put it, and then be like, okay, I may not be in the correct position to do this, but I'm in any position to do it. So I'm going to do it. Uh, and then also, I have this written down. During his rescue, <laughs> he asks, now what's the matter? You got someone else to be? This guy, I tell you. This guy is the perfect way to, <laughs> like, that's the perfect phrase, the perfect reaction phrase to most of the shit that Mark does in this movie, or most of the shit that Mark says in this movie. Yes, absolutely. This guy, am I right? Question mark. The subtitle <laughs> for yeah, I think Mark is a really fun exercise as a as a Gundam protagonist because you can compare and contrast for him. I, I think you, it's easy to make the argument that he is firmly rooted in the tradition of Gundam protagonist. He is reluctant to get into the mobile suit. He's reluctant to join war. He, you know, he but, he but he does want to sort of uh, you know a, a thumb his nose at authority to follow through on his conscience. I mean, these are pretty typical. A Gundam protagonist characteristics, but he's also a little different. He is a a jaded veteran. You know, he's not coming at it from the perspective of having never been in war, like like an Amuro or a Camille or or Jadao. But he is now. You know, he's he's been in that situation, or or at least in. We don't know. We don't know what combat he saw. We the only thing we really get told is that you know, there was a failed rescue that caused him to leave. Uh, and so you know, it's it, you have to wonder like why why does he feel this way? Certainly. We learn about you know his ideological problems with consent, so it's interesting to see that that perspective, the sort of uh, the the traumatized person who's on their second career path. I would say that maybe 
the Gundam protagonist that he is most like is like Arlette Almage from Twilight Axis, who is also yeah, the, the name on the tip of everyone's tongue. <laughs> the name oh, on the yeah. tip of everyone's tongue, uh, who is also on her second career path and is suffering some trauma from her previous career. Yeah, it's nice to see an aged up Gundam protagonist. Keep in mind that when G Savior was in a very inchoate state, like in a very early draft state, the protagonist was supposed to be a teenager like most of the Gundam protagonists out there. So it, mm. I do like the fact that we see a Gundam protagonist in their 20s. I believe canonically Mark is 25. Um, so I'm closer to, I'm very close to Ramba Rao in age, but still I, I can relate a little bit more to Mark Curran than I can like a, I would say, yeah, I can, I can relate more to Mark Huron than I can to Amore at this point. Oh, totally. That's that's 100% true facts for me. Mm, yeah, I was actually going to bring up, uh, is this the oldest Gundam protagonist? Because Mark Curran, not Mark Curran, uh, the guy who plays Mark Curran uh, was 24 at the time. And as if he's kinetically 25, then that tracks. But to me, having, of course, not seen all of Gundam and being aware of most of it, he seems to me that he might be the oldest Gundam protag. Yeah, I think you're right. It's got to be. Unless you really have a unless you really manipulate the definition of protagonist. Yeah, unless oh, like sure, sure. I don't think Shiro or Ko are secretly old are, are they? They're still young boys like 1920 probably. Yeah, I wonder if Shiro cracks 20. That's a great question. Another thing I'll say is that I think there's a real a, a part of this and, and and I you know, I know we talked about who the writers were that worked on this. But I imagine some of this too reflects, and, and we talked about this in the in the history episode, reflects an idea of bringing a little bit of Hollywood into what they were doing. Because I think a lot, of, I think you, in at the time this film was being made, you have a lot of movies that were uh, retired guys going back and doing their thing one more time. You know, that's that's your your you know John McClane didn't show up to be a police officer, but he sure gets the bad guys. Or John Matrix in Commando is retired, but he's back at it. Now those characters are, are different in some important ways, but I think they're they're similar in the idea that you have a a a talented veteran who is pulled back into the fray, mm, or even the last action hero. <laughs> mm. All right, so Shiro's 23, so he's close. I'm on mm. a very old Reddit thread with people arguing about this question. Like, if you want to, <laughs> again, if you want to consider Amro's age and Shara's counterattack, he's 29. Uh, but I don't, it's upsetting to consider Amro at that stage in his life a quote unquote protagonist. Yeah, he's not even this. Is he even the same person, you know? Come yeah. On. Yeah, not really. But no, uh, talk about G Savior Eraser. N- Eraser. No one mentions G Savior in this no, ancient Reddit thread. Tisk tisk. For shame. <laughs> I might be wrong on the age. I think I read it somewhere. I think I read it. So we'll talk. I have some excerpts, translated excerpts from the G Savior novel. I think that's where I'm pulling 25 from. But it okay. tracks. As uh, Andy said, Brennan's 24. That that feels right. There's no way he's younger than that. No. E- no even no, with no. Gundam standards. Especially to have been in war and then retired from war. You don't, you're probably not going to be doing that at 14 and 15 and still be a teenager for this movie. Yeah. I, uh, I do want to bring up uh, one thing about the underwater rescue. One very offhand remark uh, that, I forget who the lady is. I think she says it. 
But she notes that uh, Lieutenant Holloway's mobile suit is in a Terran flight mode. Or uh, I think, yeah, I think it's what she says. A Terran flight mode. And I'm not convinced that if it weren't in that mode, that it would have fared any better underwater. But I, I appreciate that the script had the, I guess, just <sighs> narrative and world-building intelligence to just bring that detail up to the audience. Does it matter? No. He's has a mobile suit underwater and water is getting in. But the fact that they brought up that detail, I really appreciate. It's just, I have written here, it's like, I appreciate the consideration to the audience to provide even that little bit of technological world building. Yeah, it really does hook into the... I, I, I would love to know how that came to be there because I think it really hooks into the G-Savior cross-media thing because the idea of modes for different uh, terrain situations is certainly something that shows up in the PS2 game. The, uh, the G-Savior, as we know it, is identified as being the aerial mode and then you can unlock doing a very tedious thing that I do not recommend anyone else does. You can unlock <laughs> G-Savior terrain mode you know, it was cool. It looks cool. Terrible mobile suit to use in the game, but it's very cool when you can unlock it. Mm -hmm. I Mark Curran and by extension, Brennan Elliott certainly has his fans online, especially on Gundam Twitter. Uh, we've interacted with a few of them over the last few weeks. <laughs> I am very taken with Mark Curran. He is the definition of endearing for me. Like he's <laughs> he's such a weird soup of a lot of different personality quirks. He's goofy, very socially awkward, sometimes charming, also sometimes skeevy. Um, the ninetyness of the script really comes out whenever Mark talks. He's he's full. He's also arrogant and a bit of a womanizer, but mm -hmm. he does have a set of values. Like he left the military after being manipulated by his higher ups. Like he doesn't take Amaro's path. Um, they both, Amaro thumbs his nose at authority, but then he locks, his locks, he's right in lockstep with the Federation as the series continues. He's a cog in the war machine. But you can't really say the same about Mark. He's more of an idealist, which is interesting to see. And, uh, but I, I'm, I'm more in love, not in love, that's too strong a word. I am more, I'll say infatuated, even though that is also a strong word. I'm infatuated <laughs> with Mark because of his goofy ass stage presence and his like weird charm more so than for ideological reasons even though i think at his heart ideologically he's a good guy he wants to help those around him and he's willing to thumb his nose at authority which is always good in my book and which i also which also i do think that makes him like an archetypal gundam protagonist even though of course he's much older and much more world weary than almost all of his counterparts I think Mark really slots in. This is a very specific archetype, and you would have had to have, you know, spent time at a, a boarding at a university maybe to pick up on this. But Mark very much strikes me as the the guy who shows up to campus who like graduated three or four years ago, and he's really <laughs> fun. But you're also like, what are you doing here? So he's basically to use a community reference, the Jeff Winger of Gundam, except mm. <laughs> I would say less unctuous than Jeff Winger, less slimy. I'm gonna but have also to believe not, you. Not quite. It's one of my favorite shows, PMC, but not <laughs> quite as good on his feet. Per Mark's orders, Lieutenant Holloway jettisons his suit's thrusters. Now immobile, with the clock ticking, 
Lieutenant Holloway ejects the cockpit, which Mark catches with the guppy's arm. The lab techs erupt into cheers. Ecstatic, Philippe and Daggett go to greet Mark once he returns to the lab. Lieutenant Holloway, bound to a stretcher and receiving oxygen. Thanks, Mark, for saving his life. I gotta say, this is pretty toyetic, this sequence where the oh, yeah. the boosters <laughs> pop off and the little <laughs> the little cockpit jumps up and he, and he grabs it. Uh, I mean, both both the way that the suit disassembles as well as just the, the claw game of it, very satisfying. It's very McDonald's toy. The movement is very like the movement of, or I guess like the functionality of McDonald's toys. Like I can imagine like the, the McDonald's mech, like you being able to pop out the thrusters just like that. Yeah. I do want to bring up... I. I already brought up that I like that the movie starts off with Mark doing a rescue, which, like I said, just shows his character and his characteristics and his ideas. But it also just shows how much he understands about mobile suits, right? Because as far as we know, so far in the movie, he's just an underwater scientist. But then he's like, okay, you are in this position. You need to jettison your thrusters. You need to eject it this time so I can capture you it starts to make the audience kind of wonder, what does Mark know? Who is this person? Is he just a scientist? So I just appreciate that that kind of peek into Mark and how he might be more as this movie progresses. Yeah, Mark is a man of mystery in a lot of respects. <laughs> also, Lieutenant Holloway has seen some shit. Like, I like how Mark's like, yes, yeah, someone will pick you up. You're basically, he's in the fucking Marianas Trench, like no one is stopping by his he just felt like he just was shot through the atmosphere this dude and then crash lands at the bottom <laughs> of the ocean floor this dude has seen some shit in the last 20 minutes as a space station re-entered atmosphere yeah i feel like his performance kind of reminds me a little bit of the the guy who gets aliened uh, in space balls just sort of like just like real haggard you know not having a good time of it it's funny. I was thinking about space. Well, this is, we'll talk about this in a bit. But I was thinking about space balls with the consent uniforms. Um, they have similar vibes to the faux imperial uniforms featured in space balls. You know, I actually, I just thought of something. So I have in my notes, like, what was Lieutenant Holloway actually doing? But then I have, I found out later it was quote debris intercept with the space station when he fell out of orbit. I think that's the line in the movie. I'm just now realizing it wasn't that debris was coming at a space station. That's the space station that the Gaian folks rode in on. Yeah, the four-person team from Gaia. Yeah, that the, was the space station that they well, they reprogrammed to survive reentry. <laughs> I just I just now realized that. I kind of I figured that it, he was the debris was separate from the space station and he must have gotten a hit from it. But no, that was okay. Good. Yeah, See, I mean, just infinitely, infinite joy to watching and rewatching G Savers, the infinitely rewatchable movie. <laughs> the higher ups that consent, I'm sure, aren't good people or particularly intelligent, but they should have just saved Lieutenant Holloway a traumatic afternoon and just said, you know what? It's pointless throwing a mech in front of like a space station that's descending through the atmosphere. It's just, it's going to run its course. Right. Char's counterattack notwithstanding, it's going to run its course. It's right, he didn't have enough psycho frames. He didn't have enough um, 
uh, Deus Ex to save <laughs> whatever it was. Unfortunately, their celebration is short-lived. Armed soldiers proceed down the corridors and secure the base. Hands in his pockets, with a bit of swagger and the obligatory cure in snark, Mark approaches them. However, his mood changes once Lieutenant Colonel Jack Hale arrives. The two have a history. Jack's his former CEO. Tension in the air, Mark asks, Isn't this 21-gun salute you've got here a tad bit overboard for a simple search and rescue? Jack replies that intruders have penetrated the perimeter. As if on cue, the lights flicker. Uh, I've, I'm clapping. I'm, I'm, I'm clapping my imaginary hands. I'm standing on my imaginary feet right now for <laughs> Brendan Elliott's performance. He's really chewing the scenery here. Love the ham. Like, you could hear his voice practically drip with disgust when he says, Jack. And, and here, <laughs> this, again, talk about Gundam staples. Here are our opposing ace pilots. You have Mark and Jack. Such American-ass names, by the way. They oh, are are Amaro and Shar without the socio-political complexity or emotional baggage. And I will say, without the intimacy, no fucking way am I shipping these two. Because Jack is the fucking worst. <laughs> you may say that about Shar too, but Shar has got a certain presence that Jack Hale doesn't have. Yeah, Jack, I mean, Jack is just kind of a flat boring fascist i mean a really a, a flat boring fascist that is fun to hate to the credit of david lovegren's performance i i do mm -hmm. think he is a simple but effective villain but it's definitely the what makes it work is the um i guess like the way like mark licks his lips as he just verbally tears into him I and mean, it's true here and it's true later <laughs> during the cocktail party that he just like he's been waiting for this you know like you really believe the history between these two based on how free Mark is with just, you know, the sling after sling. Yeah, there, There's distinct silver-tongued disdain going on right here, for sure. Someone who can show his disdain without fear of consequence. I do, uh, speaking of Mark and his markiness, I have written down here... Uh, when the consent soldiers are walking around and typing on their computers, he walks up to one of them and says, uh, check out time was at 11. This guy, for real. <laughs> this, this guy, am I right? Oh, I, uh, I love it so much, though. Um, Brennan Elliott's performance is so unique in the Gundam universe because this, this level of snark and warmth does not exist, I would say, in any other Gundam media. I'm a bit, I think we're a bit biased because we are native English speakers, and it's right, rare yeah. that we interact with a piece of Gundam material that was basically originally written in English, even though, of course, the Japanese side came up with the treatment. It's been a few years since I've seen it, but it would be very fun to compare the the comedy the snarkiness of g savior to directly to the comedy of double zeta because judao is definitely like the most like outwardly comedic fun loving of i think some of those early gundam protagonists it's been a few years since i've seen it and i mostly remember the more traditional gundam episodes later in the series but i definitely think it would be it would be interesting to compare and contrast because you're right I, I do think there is this kind of snark is less common but, you know, remember, Double Zeta, Double Zeta is the show where Judao punches people. It's not that the Gundam Protag gets punched. It's a different kind of show. 
Gundam does not have the best track a track record when it comes to comedy. Like usually the comedic bits don't land. If I have to say, I don't know. I think actually Gundam the Origin or Cuckoo's Dones Island gave me the most legitimate UC laughs. Um, but G Saver's close. We gotta be careful here. <laughs> the the Tomino as comedic director is like a whole can of worms that we're just gonna step in. <laughs> <laughs> I'll have I'll I'll mention Tomino this episode, but for our next episode, I have thoughts because some of the character turns are very Tomino. Mm-hmm. Mm. I have a leading question for both of you, and of course, you know the answer. Do the consent soldier uniforms look familiar, or did they look familiar before you read my note on it? Oh, absolutely. They actually did not. Though I've seen the movies they have been used in before. When I was watching, I'm like, yeah, cool. They have. Nice helmet, nice leathers, and uh, nice M16s, despite being thousands of years in the future. <laughs> Huge American ass M16s. Yes. Of, of American proportions. These, I, I, like, these uniforms kind of have a cult following, even independent of G-Savior, because there are a lot of videos tracking just how many films these um, pieces of equipment, these, these costumes were used in. Uh, I don't know if I have a complete list. The most obvious polls are Firefly and Starship Troopers. I see them referenced the most in regards to G-Savior. Like, the, the same costumes were used for all three of these productions. And for the record, also, Starship Troopers 2. I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, there are three proper Starship Trooper films. The second two are straight to DVD. I mean, as long as they made Heinlein spinning in his grave, there can be as many as they want. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There are at least three, correct? Uh, and maybe hope- they show up in the third one. I saw, I saw two also referenced. So I wanted to give it its due. I, I, I wouldn't if you ask if I watched you Savior blind for the first time. I wouldn't be able to draw like the connective lines to Firefly, which is a show very near and dear to my heart. Back when I was young, I've since I have not watched it in ages, and probably will never go back to it. But even still, like that show does linger in my memory. But I wouldn't have been able to do the the pull, like, oh, those are the the evil empire equivalent in Firefly's costumes. I wouldn't be able to make that pull. Mm. Apparently, they should also show up in two separate Power Rangers shows, Time Force and Lost Galaxy, in a film that I've never heard of called Imposter, and a film I have seen but have completely forgotten. Tim Burton's 2001 Planet of the Apes. Apparently, the costume crew, the production designers, repurposed these, the consent uniforms um, for that, which came out right after G Savior. So maybe it went G Savior to Planet of the Apes. Hmm. I also saw some people say that these turn up in the the Wing Commander movie, but I I looked through the Wing Commander trailer and I really couldn't find them. So maybe they were modified in some way. Because Wing Commander mostly features, you know, the player, like the t- player characters, excuse me. Wing Commander, the movie, not the game, mostly features the, uh, you know, the, the, the title, the, the main pilots in like track, like jumpsuits, you know, like you know, between piloting missions. So, you know, maybe I just didn't get the, the right footage, but it would be funny to have it be in a Wing Commander movie. It would be an interesting connection. <laughs> this is going to sound cliche to say. This feels very Wing Commander. I'm going to say this so many times. This feels very... Give me another established science fiction show from the 90s. Like, this feels very Stargate. Stargate. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> this feels very Farscape. Yeah. <laughs> Babylon 5. Sequest, which mm-hmm. was pointed out to me on Twitter. Shoutouts to Grant. <laughs> 
like Jack says, the perimeter has been breached. Four scuba-clad intruders cut power to the alarms before making their way deeper into the lab. As Mark tries to suss out their location, Jack vents his frustration. So where are they? He demands. Unable to provide that information, Mark, Daggett, and Philippe are asked to step aside. Now dismissed, the trio talk shop. Daggett suspects that the intruders rode in on a big hunk of debris that landed on the south side of the rig. Philippe agrees. That's what Holloway must have been chasing before he had to bail. With a shit-eating grin, Mark slinks off. Daggett and Philippe know exactly what he's going to do. I think it's safe to say that Jack and Mark are a non-starter. No shipping them like I mentioned before. But I think there's hope yet. If there's any sexual tension in the first 43 minutes of the movie... I think it's between these three. Like, the way Daggett and Philippe talk about Mark, it's very eroticized. It's very heated. It's very suggestive. Like, Daggett bites her glasses, and Philippe seems very infatuated with Mark. Like, they, these two are Mark's biggest fans. And love can bloom in the most unusual places. Like, I want, I also want, G, I want many G-Savior things, but give me G-Savior, <laughs> the workplace romance. I mean, there is a long tradition of remote scientific outposts having some entanglements you know there's you know whenever you read about you know antarctic research posts there you know the, the shipment of condoms is essential to the the normal order <laughs> of uh, what's what's going on there and i wouldn't be we now here's the one thing i will say is that we don't know in universal century 223 how easy or hard it is to get to the hydrogen plant it seems it seems like they don't make a big deal out of it. Jack and his crew show up pretty easy. And then Mark gets back to his apartment real quick. Mark gets back to Vancouver, which I, I'm just going to, I don't actually know if it's Vancouver, but I'm just going to call it Vancouver. He gets back there real quick. I would love, so hopefully I think the BJ from Zionic scans mentioned that he's working on translating the G savior novel. I've seen parts mm. of this translation. Um, it's really just the beginning. What we've just talked about. I am curious about Mark and Daggett's role. I feel like there is some something there to their dynamic, and I wish we got a little bit more of it. I, I do. Some of their banter doesn't land with me. It's very like TGI Fridays, like the the programming block in the '90s. I feel like I'm watching. Was it two guys, a girl, in a pizza place? I feel like this is like G Savior. What would be airing on ABC in like 1995? But I feel like. There's more to this dynamic. It doesn't necessarily even have to be romantic. Just the, It feels very lived in between the three of them. Mark makes his way to a sealed room. Before he can bypass the locks, Jack appears, throws him aside, and opens the door. Mark, he says, your two minutes of courtesy were up an hour ago. The intruders, hearing that the door is about to open, frantically grab the samples they're here for. After opening the door... Jack's men unleash a hail of machine gun fire at the intruders. Two escape, one dies, and one surrenders. This act of submission, however, doesn't satisfy Jack. But before another body can hit the floor, Mark runs in front of the prisoner, who's unarmed, preventing an escalation. I have a stupid question. Is the guy here the same one that Jack unzips later in the morgue? Good oh. question. 
I remember in high school, a teacher told me that she had a friend who was super excited that she was in a film and had a, an extended one-on-one scene with Bruce Willis. It was in the movie Unbreakable, and she was a corpse in one scene. Ah, ha, ha. Mm. And so I just think about, did this actor manage to get in two scenes as a corpse? <laughs> well, the uh, the actress who plays Rey in the newest Star Wars trilogy, one of her earliest roles was as a, as a corpse on CSI. Oh, Daisy Ridley. She she, uh, she has shown up in some uh, interesting places. Um only yesterday, the Asao Takahata film that was recently dubbed an early Studio Ghibli production, um, she plays the protagonist in that. Hmm. And a corpse in CSI. Hey. <laughs> you know, there was there was a contest when I was in high school to actually be a corpse on CSI. I think I was one year too young to be able to enter, but I wanted to. CSI, Mythbusters, and NCIS were the hottest shows when I was in high school, and three of my favorites that is such a high school like <laughs> oh, raffle yeah. right there. Coming from someone who works in a high school, I, I, I feel that energy. Yeah. Uh, I, one thing I want to bring up about this scene is that, well, first off, the line, your two minutes of courtesy were up an hour ago. Such a good line. I love that. It's, it's just perfect for Jack's type of energy. Um, like the, just like the two minutes I gave you weren't even like you didn't even deserve but anyway i also do want to say that key cards definitely age this movie because key cards just aren't very cool if you know what i'm saying (laughs) yeah for example i use a key card a swipe in card for my work job and it's not very cool right for for something I, i i get it just with the overall kind of dirty atmosphere of this hydrogen underwater plant so far and the, the utilitarian look of the guppy, but it's like key cards, like, and not even like hold up holographic key cards, but actual like swiping key cards, magnetic strips and everything, not even HIDs. Uh, it's like, oh man, that's, it's not a great look. It makes me think of the keyboards that were taped to the wall in Space Mutiny. You know, it's just like, okay, this is what we have. But it's it's, it's small, but it's still... It's, it's small, but it happens throughout the rest of the entire movie. And so you're constantly reminded of how aged this movie is. There are some really, really excellent door panel shots throughout this film. I think a lot of them come later, but uh, there's definitely some very, very good ones. I just want to... I've said this so many times, I just want to bottle up this aesthetic. This is my childhood. <laughs> I, I really need a mystery of science theater for G Savior. That would be the uh, the the icing on the cake for me. This scene got me thinking about UC lore, which I try not to think about too much. I wonder if something equivalent to the Antarctic Treaty exists in UC twenty or zero two two three. For the unaware, the Antarctic Treaty was a wartime document ratified in double o seventy nine between the Federation and the Principality of Zeon. We've, we covered the origin on this podcast, and the signing was a key plot point of one of the origin episodes. And also, of course, it plays a role in First Gundam too. And this document did a lot of things, but specifically, as it pertains to this scene, it stated that prisoners of war must be treated humanely. Now, consent isn't actively at war with Gaia yet, but I feel like similar energy here. Um... And, but once Zeon collapsed, the treaty became null and void. 
But the way that Mark act is acting here, I wonder if an equivalent piece of legislation might exist to ensure the protection of POWs this far out in the UC timeline. Of course, it could just be standard military procedure. Maybe Mark's trying to desperately appeal to Jack's sense of right and wrong, which would be a big mistake, and I think Mark should know better, considering their shared history. Sometimes the inner man, you know, just has to do what's right. That could just be an explanation there, too. Mark's just being like, I'm the protagonist, and this is wrong. <laughs> somewhere somewhere in here, there's definitely, like, a, a meme uh, uh, based on that the uh, the consent format where it's like Mark and Cynthia are like I don't consent and Jack says I do consent <laughs> I've been workshopping that since I first popped the DVD <laughs> and nothing has worked so far yeah the problem is is that it relies on people knowing that consent is a thing in the film which <laughs> which is a struggle I know there's not enough G savior like iconography that's yeah. going to track on social media other yeah. than maybe Brendan Elliott's Mark Curran. <laughs> right. You can, you can put Mark in the film and, you know, make just on the, on the screen and be like sex joke. And then you know, it's, it'll just sort of work itself out and you know, make up one of the, uh, I had a great extended conversation with, uh, with Rex neighbors the other day about titles of films that Brendan Elliott has been in. Uh, also, by the way, any Letterboxd users listening to this, if you could log into your account and give G Savior a good score so that it is no longer the lowest ranked Brennan Elliott film on Letterboxd, I would appreciate that. Thank you. No, same for me. Yeah, that'd be a great idea. Yeah, I'm going to tweet that out. That's, uh, <laughs> that's a tweet in the making. I believe, was, I believe it was Tom Asenwell who pointed that out, so credit to Tom for, for identifying that that grave injustice. I'm actually surprised. He doesn't have to. Brennan, if you're listening to this, don't feel pressured. But I'm a little surprised Brennan Elliott hasn't interacted with the account. We'll talk about who has uh, interacted with the account a bit later. But I was I was singing his praises. And I really do like his performance a lot in G-Savior. I, I'm, I'm, I'm vowing live on this podcast that I'm definitely going to check out one Hallmark G, uh, Brennan Elliott movie. That's my life goal before I pass away. You know, I might actually have to do that, too, because I, I, I'm i in the same boat. It's like, it's just a fun performance. Like, I, of course, I'm not Brendan Elliott, and so I don't know how he actually was feeling and how he approached this production, but it does look like he was having a pretty fun time with it. And I, I kind of get that energy, you know. He has interacted with people online about G-Savior, and he seems pretty positive about the experience. Good. I'm I'm very glad to hear that. Yeah, I think there was um there was like a Mike Tool thing from way back where there were some Brennan Elliott quotes and you know, he says I believe the energy was positive, that they thought maybe it was like a pilot for a TV show, you know, again, mm. because this feels very much like a 90s sci-fi TV show as we've all been saying and I think, you know, everyone who was making this also felt the same way. <laughs> well, I'm going to step forward just a little bit in my notes. We were we were talking about consent, consent, consent. I, it's not like missed. I didn't miss it. It's not missed on me and it's not entirely subtle, but it's kind of ironic that this totalitarian regime is consent. <laughs> it does have some flavor, doesn't it? Right. <laughs> I, I think somewhere in your notes, Steve, and you talk about like how it's, this is not the most subtle Gundam when it comes to its, its classical Gundam tropes 
and I'm okay with that. And this is a perfect example of what is subtlety. I know, I know authors who use allegory and they're cowards. <laughs> yeah, subtlety wouldn't, I mean, you could argue if Gundam has ever been super subtle. I think there are moments of subtlety, of course. But even the fans of the more, I'll say, quote unquote, art house Gundam stuff, for lack of a better term, and I'm really subtweeting Tomino's work here. <laughs> They love G Savior. Like people are super warm on it because it's not subtle, it's charming, it's in your face, and like mm-hmm. I said many times before, it's very of its time. You know, speaking of a little hallmark flavor here, we're gonna get a little we're getting a little heat here. That night, after things have cooled down, from the comfort of his girlfriend's apartment on Earth, Mark dreams of a traumatic event he experienced when he was a consent soldier. Viewers lack full context at this time. But we can infer that Mark tried, unsuccessfully, to save his comrade, Colonel Sawyer, who died. It also seems that Jack was involved in some way. So, let's talk about Mark's job on the, on the rig, because he keeps referring to it, and I'll continue referring to it throughout the film as his rig. Um, but it doesn't really seem to be his in the pure sense of the ownership like if you're considering it as like a possessive possessive form of this noun it's not his rig he doesn't own the rig and i was looking through mark simmons's gundam the official guide and mark writes he's the head of security at the hydrogen research facility i feel like the film's not incredibly explicit about his role but i feel like this tracks like if you were head of security you i could see you calling the rig your rig right now, I know PMC, you had a note about this, because I originally thought, what was he doing in the guppy in the first place? Like, was he out there mining? Like, this doesn't seem like it would fall under the purview of a security chief. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a situation, and, and this is less explicit, but because of who he is and what the film is, I have to assume that his role is related to the fact that he can pilot mobile suits, right? Like, that has mm. to be... They needed a mobile suit pilot to do this, and so it was not being in the military, and so he's going off to do it. You know, it's the case of a you know a pilot who gets a civilian job and then you know gets pulled back in. I mean, I, I I very much think that's that's what the script is angling for, even though it is you know not filling in the details about why do you need to inspect the smokers up close in a in a guppy. You know, that's not. <laughs> That is not being shared with us, really. But I have to assume that the general gist of it is this is his office and they need him to pilot the suit. Yeah, it feels like in that case, they're a little understaffed because they're like, yeah, who's going to pilot the guppy? Well, Mark, Mark has military experience. Let's get Mark on this. Hmm. I'm going to quote the novel here because I think this is interesting context. Uh, Translation, like I mentioned earlier, courtesy of BJ. A little long, but I think it's interesting, so bear with me. Quote, Mark's job on the rig involves operating a marine mobile suit, an MMS, which is a suit that he can operate underwater, utilizing his talent and career in piloting mobile suits during his military days. Almost every day, he would take his MMS, which looks a bit ungainly, but has a lovable charm, and affectionately called guppy by everyone, and descend to the deep test farms of the seafloor. And as an extension, there's another paragraph I want to read. Quote, Mark Curran, a native of Earth, held the rank of Air Force Lieutenant in the Congressional Armed Forces until one year ago. 
Despite the military's strict demand for unwavering obedience to orders, Mark chose to retire after refusing to comply with one such directive. With unmatched skills in piloting mobile suits, and there's a nice little uh, bit in parentheses here, humanoid robots piloted by humans, that, sh- that should be the name of this podcast, not Giant Robot <laughs> FM. Humanoid Robots Piloted by Humans FM. We're always looking for synonyms for Mecca. It'd be AM at that point. <laughs> <laughs> Returning back to the quote, Mark was a highly regarded prospect for the future at the young age of 25, causing some within the military to lament his decision to retire. But Mark chose his own future over being subjected to a military court-martial, the future he chose is a challenge to overcome the most important task for humanity today, the food crisis. So this description makes him to be like very much an ideologue. Like this is a man, a young man with thoughts, and he wants to um, bet, you know, he wants to, he doesn't want to be a part of the military apparatus, and he wants to make life better for other people. Like he's on a humanitarian mission here, which I feel like comes through in the film a bit, but he's... He's not as efficient, I feel like, in the film. He's very, he comes across as very bumbling. And I know, obviously, he's not an expert in the field of underwater agriculture. Like, I don't, he doesn't give off scientist vibes. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's, it's funny that I thought about this before when we were describing Mark Curran's character previously. And, and I thought about it again now. But, and it's me and my one-track mind. And no, I haven't brought up Star Trek the Motion Picture yet. But uh, the way that we're describing Mark Kern's character honestly makes me think of Roger Smith's character. You know, they're the same age. Roger is 25, if I remember correctly. And he was also previously in the military police, figured this is not okay. This is wrong. I'm going to leave and start helping people who can't help themselves underneath this horrific regime that is paradigm. And, you know, Roger has, you know, his childlike, maybe that childlike's not the right word, but his kind of happiness to just be around and kind of his bumbliness as well. You know, when he meets Dorothy for the first time, he's pulling his collar tight and he's like, you know, I only now was informed that you were here. My name is Roger Smith. How can I be of service? And for him to just go like, oh, okay. And then drop all airs and just sit down and cross his legs and be like, what do you want then? You know, I get similar vibes, and it was, again, it's 1999, which is the same year Big O came out. You know, I imagine, of course, there's no direct correlation, but that could just be a similar, properly 90s character archetype that both of them are possibly playing upon. Yeah. I would love it if I turned on Adult Swim, the Big O was on, and following the Big O, <laughs> G-Savior aired. Uh, it, it Actually... The vibes aren't exactly right for Adult Swim or Toonami. I think G-Savior would have to premiere on Sci-Fi Channel with their anime block. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or even Tech TV. One of the two. Uh, I vote Sci-Fi Channel. Yeah, I vote Sci-Fi Channel. Same. On another note, I gotta say that these are some nice digs. Alright, so Mimi's character is going to take a turn, but that turn's not going to happen until next week when we talk about the back half of the film. So right now I can say... I don't mind Mimi in the first 43 minutes of this movie. Uh, she's, we'll learn she's very flawed and temperamental. Um, but maybe Mark should have taken her up on her offer. Like maybe he should have moved in. No way is he going to be able to afford a penthouse apartment on his salary. 
so I made I made this joke before. I know, like, in a literal sense, we're in Vancouver for everything in this film. They never say what city we're in, right? I don't think so. Okay. Mm-mm. They in the novel, and again, I'm only working on like three translated pages here, but it's and this is in the film too, but it's near the Eastern Seaboard. Not far off from Philadelphia, PMC. So Mark Curran is kind of like a local. So maybe, maybe it's Philly. Yeah, it, it wouldn't surprise me. I feel like I'm trying to think. There's a, I've, there are some sci-fi settings that will connect the uh, you know based on famous launch pads for going to space, right? Like like mm-hmm. uh, like Cape Canaveral will get tied in or, or something like that, you know. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, as the, the novel translation comes along, it's like, well, actually, we situated approximate to this famous site for traveling the space. Yeah, the we'll talk about this towards the end of the episode, but Sturgis Airfield, which I don't think actually exists because I did do a Google search and nothing popped up. But if, if let's just say they are in Philly, um, I'm a resident of South Jersey, not too far from Philly, and there are a lot of military bases, some still oh, operable. Okay. And a lot of decommissioned military bases, so <laughs> who knows? Maybe I'm living in G-Saver and don't know it. It may be. Mm-hmm. You, you'll need to be like those guys. Um, oh, I should know this. Was Kirk born in Colorado? Well, anyway, that, that town over in the Midwest where Kirk is supposed to be born, how they have a giant sign that says the future birth ba- birthplace <laughs> of Captain James T. Kirk. You need to do something like that. Just, yeah. It needs to be your goal to put future birthplace of Mark Curran. <laughs> yeah. Jane, or rather I mean, future workplace. I mean, fucking Janeway has a statue uh, wherever the fuck she's from. Uh, I love to meme on Janeway. Uh, shout outs to uh, Kate Mulgrew. I love her dearly. I only well, she say was this for gr- love. She was great in uh, Remo Williams' The Adventure Begins. Yeah. <laughs> I would love to see her give her a Gundam role. Give, she should be our Gundam narrator. She has a lot of gravitas, especially now in her yeah. uh, older, you know, she's in her 60s now, but her voice has a very guttural quality, probably because of smoking, but I can't confirm that. Uh, mm-hmm. That might do it. Uh, it's a Riverside, Iowa is where mm. Kirk was born. Uh, before we move on to the next scene, I do want to kind of talk about the flashback that happens uh, the first time through, you do kind of get a sense that something bad is definitely going on. Having watched the movie and then went back to the first half to take my notes, I definitely see a lot more of what's trying to be said. Of course, it's, it doesn't fail in trying to say what it say because, of course, we, the audience, don't have any context. But it's uh, it's definitely... I'm kind of of two minds of the flashback because it's good because you get to see Mark's pain and him trying to... Him wanting to do what's right, but having being told not to do it, or rather he can't do it. And so I'm like, okay, this is definitely a good setup for something that will hopefully come up later and be an explanation uh, for his character and something that he's hung up on. Uh, and and I, the other part of my mind on it is I like when Jack laughs because it's like, oh, wow, he's, he's obviously the bad guy. <laughs> but the way the scene is cut and the way that he's framed and with the flat lighting it almost feels like a christmas story where the two bullies are laughing at ralphie so it's like uh he got two separate energies at the same time during what is supposed to be a very tense moment very very you know kind of sad moment 
an, an angry moment for this flashback. But I think overall it's effective, but I still can't help but just like, oh, <laughs> you might want to frame that a little bit better. I would like to get some characterization of Mark when he was in the military before he became so disillusioned with the military apparatus that controls him. Mm. I'm thinking like uh, we might get some Isamu Dyson vibes or something. Like I see a bit of Isamu in Mark Curran, but I wonder if he's like a full-on Macross character. Mark wakes up, visibly bothered. However, he doesn't have time to process his dream. In a few hours, he's set to accompany his girlfriend, the one and only Mimi DeVere, to the presidential ball that she must, in her role as an assistant in the diplomatic corps, attend. The two get ready. All right, we we got to, we have to talk about these two. <laughs> I I saved this note for the end because I was mulling it all week, like I couldn't quite put my finger on it. But I kept going back to is Mark a wife guy? And like strictly speaking, um based on the internet definition of this bullshit term, Mark is not a wife guy. Number 1, they're not married. Number 2, he doesn't want to go to Mimi's work event, let alone post about it. And I don't I don't know if this is going to make any sense at least but at least in the beginning of the film he does he, he does give off wife guy energy like Mimi's on the up and up in this world she has a great apartment clear career goals she's very put together she seems to be doing very well for herself Mark on the other hand especially consider what he's wearing considering his posture shoulder slumped he seems to be in a rut um, Mimi has more societal clout, which she uses to not only rescue Mark later on, but also provide critical intel. So I feel like there's like wife guy energy built into Mark. Yeah, this whole relationship is is I mean, we know it's gonna be borked for a variety of reasons, but I do think it is it is like a, a somewhat typical premise for a relationship that is doomed, which is to say one of these people is about to undergo substantial personal growth as a result of situations in their life. That's, that's Mark Kern. I'm talking about, <laughs> you know, and that, that often in real life can create the situation in which there is a breakup. Now we don't really get to process that breakup because of other reasons that we'll talk about in the back half of this film. But I do want to say something. I do want to say that I think Mimi is exploiting him for her own gain right from the start of the film. Mm. I do think that Mark is on speaking terms with General Garneau. General Garneau knows who he is. Uh, you know, I don't know what Mark's clout is like actively. Like in the ball that we see in this film, his clout has just peaked because of his heroic rescue. Mm -hmm. We don't know where his clout was beforehand. We don't know how they got together. But. You know, there is a chance that certainly they could have been together when he was still a hotshot pilot, and that would have been something for her to use as a tool to advance her in professional career. What I'll say about Mimi is that I, I, I guess she's not a villain, but you know, <laughs> she's she's sure willing to girl boss it. She's she's willing to lean in, and, and you know that makes me pretty suspicious of her. I will say in her defense i'm surprised like there's not a lot of consistency with her characterization i'm surprised once she's put on ice that she actually goes out of her way to help mark um who's basically very close to being a convicted felon because that's going to obviously fucking destroy her career so it speaks to maybe that like me she's infatuated with mark so i'm basically going back to the point like i am in love with mark curan i mean who is coming, it? I, keep, I, I keep coming back to that point <laughs> she i 
No, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say, she is a. Fu- I, I have my issue. I have huge issues with her characterization in the back half of the film. But I can't remember the actress who plays her. She has fun with the role, respects. She's a producer at Polestar Entertainment. And yeah. Mimi is fun. She has like a fun vibes in the beginning before she goes full on. I'll just say it. She goes full on Tomino Villa in the second half. <laughs> yeah yes. so katarina conti you know she's one of the producers she, i mean she's a producer for this film as well you know her name's in the opening credit crawl as a producer and uh, you know is mimi devere she as far as i can tell in imdb acted in one other film which is a film that brandon elliott also stars in that's the horror film that i read the summary for during the history episode the one involving the the serial killer and the psychic and i I'll call it hobbs end that might be one to watch if you want to yeah, see another okay. brandon elliott yeah. film I think yeah, that, that might be the one then. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so I got to watch two because I have to watch one of the, the 25, 30, 40 rom-coms that he starred in. Uh, I, mm, so I think I'm going to continue to stay ignorant of what the term wife guy means and skip <laughs> and skip over that. Uh, it, I didn't really think a whole lot, I guess, about Mimi as a character, but now that I'm kind of pressed with the question... Uh, you, Stephen, I think said that she was infatuated with Mark. It kind of seems to me, I, I may be on PMC's side with this, she's definitely infatuated with herself. Mm-hmm. Because it is, you need to come with me to the ball that I need to attend. And this is for my future. And I think uh, this is skipping forward a little bit. But when she calls, when Mark calls her uh, on the very antiquated touchscreen that blanks out whenever he presses a button uh one of her one of the things she said is like how could you do this to me you know how could you kill someone and help a prisoner escape look how this affects me and that 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 was her big kind of issue and i'm pretty sure she asked mark if he was okay first maybe she may have asked second but the big topic for her was definitely look how you've affected my job and my standing. I've been asked to be put on like executive leave because of all the stuff you did that will affect me. Uh, so yeah, I, I'm not necessarily convinced that Mimi is strictly using Mark, but there is definitely an unhealthy aspect to their dynamic as a relationship, as, as a couple for sure. Yeah, major red flags even at the start of the film. Mm-hmm. And I, I feel like there are, and maybe these are just, you know, t- t- pretend, right? But that, that, there does there does feel like there is some genuine care and, and in love between the two of them. Because she definitely, it, it does feel like she stands up and she worries about how Mark is, you know, may maybe may or may not be making a fool of himself by goading and, and fighting with Jack, even just verbally. But right, there definitely is less of that and more of the former going on between the two of them. Yeah, and to their credit, Katarina Conti and Brendan Elliott have good chemistry with each other. They do, yes. So I guess I got to watch that other film, PMC. Hobbs gotta End. watch Hobbs End because I mean, if they have <laughs> if they have good chemistry here, imagine what it's like when she's living home alone and being stalked by a serial killer with psychic gifts, played by Brendan mm-hmm. Elliott. All right, I gotta. I'm sure. <laughs> All right, I'll do this live on the podcast. Let's see how much the DVD is. I bet I could get it for ten bucks. Oh, I, yeah. Yep, nine thirty one. Called it. Ooh, lord. There you go. Buy, looks like I buy it new for nine thirty one. Think of or, the value. 
for a dollar ninety nine on VHS. Don't talk about vibes. Do you have a VHS player? <laughs> I do not, yeah, but okay. I think I could find one at my school. Uh huh. Oh yeah, that might be true. I could just roll it out to my class like it's nineteen ninety nine and show them Hobbs End. All right, so they're still in the apartment. They're Philadelphia. They're a high rise in Philadelphia slash Vancouver. Mark turns on a monitor to watch the news. A broadcaster announces, quote, as the epidemic of starvation promises to grow even more rampant, experts continue to search out other alternatives to stave off the food shortage. President Hawk is coming under increasing pressure to use military force to bring Gaia under the congressional banner. To ensure its food production will be used on Earth as well as on other off-world settlements. End quote. All right, so maybe now is a good time to review some of the principal political players on the world stage in UC0223. Two things to note at the beginning. Federation has crumbled, as PMC pointed out when he read the summary at the beginning. Federation no longer exists. And colonies are now called settlements. Now, again, credit to Mark Simmons. In the Gundam official guide, he wrote some great descriptions of the powers that be in G-Savior. And in this, I get, remember, this is a two-part episode. We'll cover Gaia and the Illuminati more in the next episode, but on here and right now, I want to cover Consent and the Settlement Freedom League, even though Consent's the, really, the only one you have to consider for this film. So Consent stands for Congress of Settlement Nations. Quote, A new world government formed in UC 0218 after the collapse of the Earth Federation. Its member states include sites 2, 3, 5, 6, and 7, as well as their parent nations on Earth. Though the former Federation forces have been transferred to consent's control, many of its officers retain their Earth supremacist biases, and, since the exhausted Earth is dependent on the settlements for its food supply, they're eager to expand their control to the other sides. And then we have the Settlement Freedom League, Quote, the other major power to arise after the fall of the Federation, the Settlement Freedom League is an alliance of independent space nations made up of Side 1, Side 4, and the Lunar Cities. As its settlements are capable of producing all the food they need, the League is unaffected by the food crisis that now afflicts consents members. End quote. Y'all, this is textbook Gundam. This is textbook UC. Like, I think if you had to boil down the philosophy of UC Gundam, it's the more things change, the more things stay the same. And I think this holds true, this holds true in G Savior. I see a lot of people online. I'm calling them out here. A lot of people slag on this movie for having no thoughts and for not doing anything interesting with world building, which bothers me because it is not true. It doesn't execute all these ideas perfectly, and not all these ideas are satisfying or complex, but it has thoughts. It's working in that Gundam mold. Quite frankly, we see how institutional forces veer towards fascism in an attempt to hold on to power, and ordinary people suffer as a result. And baby, once you got that, you got a stew. You got a Gundam stew. And I feel like this is all in line with the trajectory of the UC timeline. Um, On this podcast, we've covered the first three Gundam compilation movies, and we've covered Gundam The Origin. And we saw in those films and in that OVA how ecologically, 
how much Earth has suffered from centuries, probably millennia, of industrialism, pollution, and the worst that capitalism has to offer. Like, this is the reason why the colonies were built in the first place, you know, hearkening back to that opening narration bit from the first Gundam narrator, which we also see firsthand in The Origin. Like, remember the refugee camps from episode two? Yasuhiko goes out of his way to tell us that large swaths of once inhabitable land have become desert. And now, now 150 years later, humanity is lying in the bed it made. Earth can no longer provide enough food for everyone, so they have to rely on settlements, which is a really interesting reversal of power. You know, Andy, speaking of old tsunami promos, you know, I always remember space is the place. Well, now space is the place because it's the place to be, even though the consent officers still hold on to old beliefs. Yeah, I think if you, if you look at G Savior as like a multimedia project and you, you pull some other things and you can really maybe do the work that's not being done in the film and sort of support this idea of, of the earth as exhausted in the G Savior PS2 game, you go to a lot of ruins of things from Gundam. You go to the ruins of the original colony dropped on Sydney. You go to the ruins of the fortress of Mount Kilimanjaro. You go to the ruins of angel halo from victory Gundam uh, and that's just a lot of shit that's been dropped on Earth and it's destroyed things. So, <laughs> you know, as as much as um, we might want more out of the the food crisis uh, plot in this movie, there is definitely uh, in the fiction plenty to support the idea that Earth is exhausted. Very much so, and it, it, I'll admit it's been nine years since I've seen Gundam X, but even Gundam X only following. 0079 and then however long the one year war lasted after that i remember and i hope i remember correctly that even then you know the 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 setting of gundam x is also that the earth is exhausted it's ruined and there just is nothing left all that's left is of course the ravages of war not to get off topic andy but gundam x is next on your watch list right it is. That is the final uh, AU Gundam, and uh, it's the only Gundam I own on Laserdisc outside of the 1G Gundam I have. Uh, it is. It's a special one. I like it. Yeah, people have been yelling at us to watch Gundam X, and I will one day, hopefully. <laughs> As I, For people who actually do follow me on Twitter, they may know that I do just series long threads on the majority of things I watch. Well, doing four in a row has kind of hurt me on that, <laughs> but I'm still going to do one on Gundam X because it deserves it. Cause everybody knows G, which is great. And everyone knows wing, which is also great. I'm glad that everyone knows about it and talks about it, but not enough people talk about, and even less people know about X. And if I could get even one person, interested in watching X and I think it'll be worth it. And that is that is a sleeper, I think, because it's 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 the AU that never aired on Toonami and it's not UC. So it's automatically uncool, right? When in actuality it is, I think, top tier Gundam. I feel like the Gundam intelligentsia, like um people who are really passionate about Gundam online have been trying to convince people that actually you know what double zeta is super good and gundam x is super good and mm. also g saver is not bad either 
Right. <laughs> that's what that's one thing a lot of people in my mentions have been saying. Mm. Going back to the food crisis, uh, I do feel that this aspect of G Savior, like consents descent into full on authoritarianism, is very prescient for our future. Like I couldn't help but think of, I took a course in climate change science fiction, and I feel like G Savior could have been on that curriculum. Because as climate change continues unabated, which unfortunately is the most likely scenario, food production is going to be severely disrupted. You know, you're going to have once arable land that's going to turn to desert, and water scarcity will only become more dire. It's very likely that in response to this, governments of affluent countries, instead of banding together, are going to become more white right wing as they lock down borders and monopolize dwindling resources. You know, the political term for this, the poli sci term for this is ecofascism. And I feel like we see this play out a bit between President Hawk, who seems to be your classic centrist. He feels very Clinton, which makes sense because Clinton left a very obvious pop cultural footprint in the world. And I'm sure uh, Japanese creatives had thoughts about Bill Clinton, and I'm sure they knew Bill Clinton as kind of like a caricature. And he was still in he was in office when G Savior became an idea, and he was in office when G Savior finally released, right before his second term ended. And I feel like Hawk is your stand-in for Clinton. And then, like obviously, there's a lot of tension between President Hawk and the consent military. But whatever Hawk preaches doesn't really matter. Um, G Savior points this out, but also G Savior the game points this out because the military's got like a lot of black box operations going. They've got a lot of irons and a lot of fires. They've got a lot of secret military projects. And really, whatever Garneau wants, that's law. That's actually going to affect people's lives materially. I believe this is in the commercial, the news report that Mark watches while they're still at their apartment. But it's. So I was saying, now we see the conflict, which is, of course, starvation and military tyranny. If you listen closely to the commercial, I think it also says that consent is trying to basically force the president, which is, you know, subordinates trying to tell the ordinate, I guess, whoever's, however you might, the opposite of subordinate is, uh, epi ordinate. But it's weird that it's like, the underlings are trying to force or at least urge the president to, you know, colonize Gaia and make them participate. And, uh, and how all the other colonies have doubled their food output. And like I said, okay, sounds possibly good on paper. Just force them to cooperate. It's for everyone's good, but it sounds good on paper. So obviously it must be propaganda. Uh, <laughs> President Hawk also seems like such a sleazebag. He is very much like a cartoon. I mean, you could argue that many presidents <laughs> have been cartoon figures, but he does seem mm-hmm. like a a caricature of an American president. At a ritzy consent venue, the presidential ball is in full swing. Diplomats and delegates rub shoulders amid the presence of armed guards. Tellingly, There are no food shortages here. Every major power is represented, with the exception of Gaia. Jack, much to Mark's annoyance, is in attendance, 
and talking to President Hawk about military intervention. Jack confronts Mark, who puts his finger on it. You mean the fact that a perfectly balanced colony refuses to take orders from a society that's completely destroying their own people? People? Ugh. I'm butchering my Mark Huron here. <laughs> Mark's clearly read the script. He, he knows the assignment. Okay, I need, I need to jump in and I need to ask a question. I'm going to insert something here into the document because I feel like it needs to be memorialized here. The camera spends a lot of time looking at these two people. I think they're just supposed to be representative of the sort of people who are present at this ball, <laughs> but they, they feel like, I don't know, like characters from, I mean, like obviously the woman feels like she's just out. She just stepped out of the movie clue. Uh, <laughs> like, <laughs> I, you know, it's so, it's so distracting. I can't help but feel like this is a leftover some from, from a previous version of the script. They, these characters aren't anything right. Like they aren't, they aren't actually named. I'm I'm not 100% dumb here. As far as I know, the only place they could possibly show up, I guess they could be in the novel, Okay, but the, maybe the radio drama, All but right. I don't think so. Okay. It almost feels like there's another TV show going on. Yeah, yeah, it does. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. <laughs> yeah, the bald guy in particular has stage presence. Yeah. He's, yes. He's hurt. He's, they all know. I guess they just walk in Vancouver and they're walking through. I don't know. <laughs> like we talked about g savior is anything but subtle i will talk more about this in the second episode when we talk about gaia and the illuminati but i think this is one of its most obvious points of divergence from other uc material especially um, when compared with anything directed by tomino and speaking of tomino i wish i read this before our history episode because i could have dropped this nugget in there Tomino has publicly commented on this movie. 2002, Mike Toole, doing the hard labor for us, point blank asked Tomino what he thought about G-Savior. Tomino responded, quote, I don't know anything about G-Savior. Then he goes on to say that he clearly knows something about it. (laughs) It's the product of salarymen, regular office workers, trying to play producer and make movies. I work as a freelancer and so couldn't influence these salaryman producers, and I regret that. End quote. All right, so this is, to be, to be fair, this is a very coherent thought. It's a very Tomino response. I don't feel the need to litigate this. I do see where he's, I, I understand why Tomino would say this, even, I don't, even if I don't necessarily agree with it. G-Savior is a very un-Tomino work. There is nuance here. But I feel like the consent guy in binary is very absolute. If Tomino were writing this, there would be more gray area. Right. It, it lends itself to a good guys versus bad guys read. Like Gaia is positioned as an almost utopic alternative to the institutional rot that destroyed the Federation, which is something that Tomino would never cotton to. But to be fair, like if you want to exist in this space, you can't just keep regurgitating the same institutional cycles of corruption and degradation eventually you're going to have to write something new and you're going to have to have a group of people band together to try to make a better world and i feel like gaia is the natural evolution of that even though the writing might be flatter as a result yeah i mean i think it's we could go on probably comparing consent to the earth federation especially those points during you know the earth federation slipping into fascism the Titans and Zeta Gundam is probably the most obvious one, especially given the the consent uniforms. But like, it's definitely way harder 
to make that connection for for Gaia because Gaia isn't even positioned as a revolutionary group really like they're not you know like the illuminati that we'll learn about and talk about is much is is more the the uh the aug uh analog than gaia is gaia is just sort of um you know they just they they just run a nice ship that's all that's they're just kind of out there (laughs) not to give away too many of my notes for the next episode i like gaia a lot it's the illuminati where i'm like this could use some tomino level of scrutiny but we'll get there. Hmm. You had brought up earlier that the the guppy may be one of the only mobile suits we see in this half of the movie. But I do want to point out that we see not one, but two boogoos outside of the uh, consent party palace. And honestly, it's just a good look. Like I, I do love just the military presence outside of the military party but then i and we'll see this a little bit later on for sure but i don't know the mobile suits just do look good in g savior there is a distinct sense of scale you know it's uh it's kind of the super robot red baron approach where all the cameras are at human eye level and so they're always looking up at the robots. Now, mobile suits are typically only like what? Like 10 or 11 meters tall? They're not very big. But I do appreciate the sense of scale that we get with the Boogoos here and definitely later at about like minute 38 of the movie, which I'll bring up later. Also, speaking of the folks who walked out of the other film that we were <laughs> talking about, they just feel out of place. I also wanted to point out green champagne because future. <laughs> it's the uh, equ- Star Wars equivalent of blue milk. Right, right. Well, I was like, you know, I'm I'm fine with that. Or, but, what was uh, the What was the thing from Andor? The squigs, the, the squigs. fizzy drinks. Yeah, yeah. Also very good. Also good. <laughs> Andy, I'm glad you brought this up. You of all people, because so. PMC and I have a special Discord channel where, you know, I workshop memes and, like, show PMC what I've been up to meme-wise. Uh-huh. And uh, I had to go to your Twitter profile because I'll post this in chat for us. Um, I really like the shot of uh, the Boogoos in front of buildings. And I thought to myself, uh-huh. you're always talking about mechs in front of windows. So I'm like, I came up with, like, mechs in front of buildings rule. I knew you posted something because I... I didn't feel like going on my old hard drive and digging through 49 episodes of Wing to find a, <laughs> like a really good still frame. Um, I couldn't find the one I was thinking of. There's an early episode of Gundam Wing when where Relina is with Noin and they're going to like a ceremonial ball or something. The uniforms, there's the costumes look great, but there's a great scene where there are Tauruses like bowing and they're walking in front of them. I couldn't yes. isolate that shot and didn't really want to go through the effort, but I'm like, I know Andy posted about this. So I went through your entire Gundam wing thread, <laughs> a lot of great frames, but I found another good one, which I think Perry's even better because they're both at night and which is the right. Leos in front of Relina right after. I think she shoots someone. And she fires at Lady Oon. Yeah. Oh, that's that scene. It misses, but that's when she does the you look you look a better babe than the blood of my enemies. Or something. She says something like that. I forget what it was. Uh, she's offered a rose, and it's like I think you would look great in this rose. It's like thank you, whoever the 
you know, oh, right. dig- the dignitary was. But I think I'd look better blood uh, bathed in the blood of Oz. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. That's the ideal, really. No, thank you. Yeah. Yes. Uh, <laughs> but I, I want. I love. It's a good shot. I mean, we'll talk more about this in episode two. I think the mechs look good. It's it is a product of its time. I'm biased. Like if I were to show G Savior to my students who watch a lot of things that feature CG animation, they probably say it looks very primitive. But I am so partial to the mech designs and just how the mechs look um, animated with this very limited technology. Like it's very Pixar from the '90s, and I find something very charming about that. And really, just the the energy they're given when they move. I'll bring that up later too, but. Yeah, I'm all about it in this movie. There's a lot of good perspective shots that really show off scale smartly, which yes. I feel like doesn't get enough credit in G-Savior. Gundam's mm-hmm. usually pretty good with this, but I feel like G-Savior is also good with this. Yeah. Uh, I do want to talk about, I'm not sure where we're at. I guess, no, no we're about to get to that next. I'll, I'll, I'll let you lead into where you want to go next or anything else you want to talk about, and I'll bring up a few uh, bullet points. The tension continues to build between Mark and Jack as the two trade barbed words. Jack accuses Mark of becoming jaded after leaving the military. Before things can blow up, Mimi intervenes. General Garneau then walks over to Mark to pay his respects to the media's new hero. The two talk privately. Garneau expresses the appropriate platitudes. You sure this old soldier couldn't lure you into coming back? Before getting to the matter at hand the guy in prisoner. Mark expresses concern about one of Jack's men who was ready to take out an unarmed prisoner. In response, Garneau trots out more platitudes. He asks Mark about the vials the truder stole. Garneau encourages him to nose around a little, see what you can come up with. All right, so I will say this. When I, when I decided to cut the episode in two, I've seen the entirety of G-Savior, um, but I have not taken extensive notes on the back half, so... I apologize if this is very obvious in the final 45 minutes. Um, But this wasn't super clear to me based on my faulty memory. I think PMC could illuminate some things here. Garneau encouraging Mark to sniff around seems very much like a scheme on his part. Um, Machinations. I feel like it's very intentionally acted as such. Does he have an end goal here? Like I know, of course, Garneau's a bad dude. I know what his overall plan is. Like, at first, I thought, like, he's got to be trying to set Mark up or kick events into motion, but he does, and maybe he's just a very good actor, and I'm taken by it, he does seem honestly flabbergasted and taken by surprise when Mark springs Cynthia loose and escapes with her. I think he might be legitimately surprised because he doesn't expect Mark to get away, you know? I, I, so mm-hmm. I To be clear, I, I am... Saying that General Garneau is playing the villain the whole time, uh, which I think is not too yeah. much of a stretch, you know, no, even based on, on this half of the movie, right? But that the idea is is that um, he's he, he's sheaving it, you know, he's doing he's doing a little Palpatine, he's putting the balls yeah. in the air, and he 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 knows that he needs to do something to reveal those elements that he desires to control, and so he just he just kicks the nest, you know, he sends he sends mark down there and he sends jack down there too you know like i mean he doesn't know what mark's done when he you know later talks to jack he just does it i feel like it's definitely right that it's it's the king knowing who any of his willing or unwilling pawns 
are. And he's as as Mimi points out later when she brings up the I think it's, she calls it the Sea Sun report is what it says on the booklet. <laughs> it's like they pretended not to know until a few days ago, but they always knew. Well, that includes the general. He always knew about the Sea Sun project. And so I would say, right, it's it's him finding anybody who could uncover, prove, and get those samples to him from uh, the doctor so that he can get the power and get the control over it that he needs. So, right. It does feel genuine. I agree also that uh, General, I think you're saying Garneau, is definitely surprised and shocked that Mark would do the things that he is blamed of doing. He definitely thought, Mark's definitely going to be on my side because he doesn't know. He doesn't care. He's just, he's worried about his own seaweed project. He just needs to get this to me and, you know, make her talk. Speaking of seaweed, I really hope, I, I'm, I'm not for environmental disruption or degradation, but the seaweed thing in Florida, I hope it really picks up because I have some G-Savior-related seaweed tweets just waiting to pop off. <laughs> so if, if the seaweed can just, like, destroy the beaches of Florida, that would be fantastic. I'm not saying I want environmental collapse, but if it were to happen, the content <laughs> would be tremendous. True. <laughs> the G-Savior synergy would be there for the taking. PMC gave me a nice rundown in our history episode of Kenneth Walsh, Welsh's uh, filmography. He passed away mm. recently, uh, RIP. Um, but yeah, he's been in a ton of stuff, and he worked it well into his late nine or late seventies and I guess early eighties. He died at wow. eighty. But yeah, he's he has he definitely has a presence in this film. I wanted to point out that when Jack and Mark are you know doing their barbed words back and forth. One of which was, what was the last stroke of genius society cold from the military, which I thought was a pretty good pull on Mark's side. Uh, the 360-degree camera work during that scene, that was honestly pretty pretty great. You know, that's, that's not a camera move I would have expected in a low-budget film like this. You know, like, that was, that, was a, that was a good conscious move on whoever did that scene, and I applaud it. Kudos to Graham Campbell. If you want to know more about his career, go to his Wikipedia page where he clearly wrote his bio. I'm, I'm not subtweeting Campbell. He seems like an honest dude. He puts in a hard day's labor. But there are just, this is wild. We talked about this on our history episode, but PMC and I came to the same exact conclusion. Here's the paragraph that tipped me off. All right, Campbell, as far as I know, had has never given like an interview on his career, or if he has, I couldn't find it very easily online. And then I'm reading his Wikipedia page. Uh, he's done a lot he's done a lot of like for hire TV work. And no judgment by the way. He does good decent work, but he has like a lot in his bio. And one paragraph reads Although known in his early career for his handling of dark subject matter, he has directed films in many genres, lately many uplifting ones. And it's like, who wrote this film scholar ask ask Wikipedia uh, summary for his career? All right, I'm going to stop talking about Brendan Elliott's filmography, but a movie that Graham Campbell directed and that Brendan Elliott is also in is a movie called Dreamhouse, which is about a an AI controlled house that turns against its residents. It's a horror, another horror film starring Brendan Elliott, directed by Graham Campbell. Same people okay. as this film. 
I'm going to have to watch okay, three Brad so and Ellie's films. Movies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's topical, though. We got AI, you know, people always talking about AI. Let's talk about an AI killer house. Mm. That sounds like a Simpsons Treehouse of Horror episode. There is one, I think Pierce Brosnan's in it, probably is Treehouse of Horror 11, 12, or 13, that deals with, like, a house, if it could think. Yeah, that's pretty much pretty much the idea. It is, uh, and it's it's got it's got a real ass aesthetic too. Uh, so you know, <laughs> yeah, as you can tell, Andy saw what I, I just pasted the the front cover of the what oh, I assume boy. is the the poster or DVD box. It just says the f- title of the film and is a picture of the house they used for, or at least the exterior shot. That's grand. That's got a. <laughs> Uh, an outer glow filter put on the text. Yeah, that's that's good, good stuff. Yeah, I'm reminded of my early days in the. I even know what I'm saying here. That I'm getting. I have podcast mouth. I remember what this is reminding me of when I worked at a movie theater as a projectionist, and we would mm. screen bad movies late at like late night on Thursdays and Fridays. And a Dream House would be perfect for the crowd that uh, went to those screenings. Before we move on, one thing about the scene that we were speaking about, I find it. So when the general and Mark are speaking, it's like, you know, general, one of Jack's men, you know, he, he was willing and ready to shoot an unarmed prisoner. General shakes his head. And he's like, you know, I've always, I've always been telling Jack that if he wants to make a career out of the military, he needs to take it down a notch. And I'm like, oh, okay. So take it down a notch being not committing war crimes. I get it. Okay. Uh, uh, that, that tracks. <laughs> this seems especially naive for Mark because Mark left the military because he was aware of the institutional sins that he was being forced to take part in. Right. But I'll forgive it because it's Mark Curran. If I was watching UC Gundam, I'd totally like, point this out and be like, hmm, I don't know about this. <laughs> With Mimi's promotion on the line, Mark goes to the facility where the prisoner whose name is Cynthia Graves, is being held. Unfortunately, visitors need CGS2 clearance or higher, which Mark does not have. Improvising, Mark decides to take advantage of his newfound fame. But you recognize me, he says to the guard. Don't you, soldier? Using his trademark cure and charm, Mark ends up smooth-talking his way into the, the prisoner cell. Yeah, I should mention the the actor who plays this prison guard is definitely in a bunch of other things as a prison guard. So, you know, respect to character actors who, who are applying their trade. He gives off major prison guard vibes. <laughs> yeah, no, that's you're not the only one who thought that, apparently. <laughs> Anything recognizable, PMC, since you have the list in front of you? I, uh. he feel, He feels familiar. Not to put you on the spot, if you no, I, I think I I know I, I got I got what I say what I say I, I can do this. So the actor's name is Ron Selmore, uh, mm. who and he has been in. He was a guard in Chronicles of Riddick. Is a pretty good one. <laughs> uh, he was a security guard in Freddy Got Fingered. Oh man, yeah. No, he's he's done. A, I think there's some some other ones as well. I'm just scrolling through the list just to see if anything jumps out at me. Uh, like you know, all episodes of things like Stargate Atlantis, uh, etc. So you know, yeah, I'm not, nothing else is ju- jumping out at me. But definitely, those are probably the big ones. The Riddick and, and Freddy got fingered. Yeah, this he feels like familiar. I can't place it, but yeah, nothing's coming up when I'm looking over his filmography. 
Well, I do want to applaud this interrogation scene. Obviously, the budget may not really be there to give it like, you know, a Blade Runner vibe, which may have been what they're trying to go for. But they definitely knew how to make an interrogation scene with the light behind a slowly revolving fan and it making that swoosh each time it completes a revolution. It's a good look. And I'm I'm not I'm not I applaud it even if the budget wasn't necessarily there. I also want to point out because I sit in one every single day. The chairs that Cynthia Graves and Mark Curran are in as interrogator and interrogatee are Herman Miller office chairs with the arms removed. Is unmistakable profile to them. I'm like, <laughs> all right. So I, I think that's a. It's a good move to make sure that your prisoners and interrogators are very comfortable yeah. in nice, breathable mesh office chairs. <laughs> proper, proper lumbar support. Mm-hmm. Also, um, Cynthia Graves, for the whole movie, I thought she was, and I don't know if I'm saying this correctly, I thought she was Sonequa Martin-Green from Star Trek Discovery playing uh, Michael Burnham. As I could have sworn, I was like, it looks just like her. Who is this person? And to my very good surprise, it turns out it's actually Inuka Okuma, who is indeed the English VA for Lady Oon. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a, it's so. a pretty fun connection. And uh, I mean, actually, I, well, I don't want to steal Steven's thunder here. Steven, you want to, I feel like you're getting, you're getting right. You already hinted you were going to bring this up. Oh, I, was, I don't know. I was, I was just going to shout her out because she interacted with yeah. the account, the uh, giant robot oh, FM account. Oh, swag! Look yeah, at yeah, that. yeah. No, she she was she seen. I mean, you know, she was she she quote retweeted it, and you know, so like, oh yeah, I did do this. I did both of these things, and you know, interacted with some people who are also replying to the the post. So no, that's, uh, she and the thing too, I, I'll say is that I, you know, she compared to Br- uh, Brennan, who has mostly done what I would call more n- normal films. Uh, you know she's done a lot of tv but she's also done you know other she's done more voice acting she's done some video games like more recently she's been a voice in the old republic the the star wars mmo uh, and you know, and also rhodonite from steven universe so you know i, mm-hmm. I think she's she is i'm willing to bet anuka okuma is more clued into nerd shit than brennan elliott is sorry brennan yeah if you want to prove us wrong uh, brennan yeah. interact with prove us account. wrong <laughs> come come on giant robot fm we'll literally talk about anything you want oh yeah uh no i i i i, I must have missed um inuka interacting with all of this that's terrific i'm so glad to see that i loved how she phrased it she phrased it like we were a known entity like uh like you open you turn on the news and like cnn or new york <laughs> times is talking about something she writes i love that giant robot shared this not many people know not many people know, but it is very true. Mm. So shout outs again to her. There is a Star Trek Discovery connection, though. I oh. just uh, Kenneth Welsh. Yeah, Kenneth Welsh was was an admiral, and I think it's episodes three and four of season three of Disco. Yes, mm. which came out not too long ago. Like I said, he only passed away recently, and he was acting up until um, the year he died. Wow. So speaking of this very low rent room. In this in this made for TV movie interrogation room, Mark tries his best to interrogate Cynthia. 
For obvious reasons, she is reluctant to divulge any information about her mission. Mark mentions that without his intervention the other day, she'd be dead, which piques her interest. So you're not one of them, she asks? Now more open to talk, she introduces herself as Dr. Cynthia Graves, the chief biotechnical engineer on Gaia. She claims Dr. Riva invited her. Mark tells her he resigned last week, which she refutes. He was removed, she states. She then goes on to elaborate. When Congress mandated all agricultural settlements double crop output, the pressure was on to come up with an alternative. That's when Dr. Riva contacted me, so we started working together, trading research, two minds working on the same goal. Only our collaboration was secret. Cynthia was after some sample he set aside for her. Consent is clearly up to some shady business. She wants those samples, and Mark is going to help her get them. Following the president's address, General Garneau and Jack discuss the state of things. Garneau refers to Hawk as a piss-poor commander-in-chief. He asks Jack if he has the guy and rebel business under control. Jack replies that he does. Yeah, and I already mentioned this, but this is just Garneau... I mean, I don't know, you know, I, I wrote Closing the Trap in my notes. I feel like I almost want to pull back on that because I, I think now I'm thinking of it more, more Sheev Palpatine in that it's just like, I'm going to yell at Jack too. Why not? <laughs> I think of Palpatine like once a day now. Um, oh, I yeah. recently got <laughs> back into my Star Wars fandom and I'm always thinking about Sheev. Just like thinking randomly. about that, that little guy. Like what would what would Sheev do in this in, if if he were in my position right now? All right, transitioning away from that cursed thought, Mark <laughs> and Cynthia locate the samples. Cynthia talks about bioluminescence, which has the potential to make deep, deep sea agriculture a reality. Their research could be a silver bullet to address the global food crisis. A bunch of techno babble ensues. Meanwhile, Jack, flanked by two armed guards or armed soldiers, really, goes to interrogate Cynthia. The guard informs him that the prisoner is with Mark Curran. Back in the lab, Cynthia mixes her research with Dr. Riva's, and voila, it works. Mark takes the sample and assures Cynthia that he'll help her. He has friends in high places. Unfortunately, once they exit the lab, they're met with Jack and his men. So as a fictional exercise, I like usually when writers use questionable but quasi-plausible science to add texture to their worlds. I'm currently teaching Ursula K. Le Guin's Left Hand of Darkness to my 11th graders, and a lot of them are unfamiliar with scientific, the, the conventions of sci-fi as a literary genre. So we talk about like the differences between hard sci-fi and soft sci-fi, and I am well aware that that binary is very troubled and you know genre genres don't hash out perfectly and you shouldn't try to fit everything into a very neat category but i think it's a helpful tool to talk about genre as a general concept so i show them like different examples in film you know star wars representing soft sci-fi something like jurassic park representing hard sci-fi and jurassic park is a film and book very near and dear to my heart i read and watched both at a very young age jurassic park was actually the first movie i watched in theaters when i was about five years old in 1993. Now, as a kid, I'd always fast-forward the VHS past the first hour to get to the dinos, like to get to the action. (laughs) 
Um, which I still appreciate as an adult, the the animatronics fucking slap in that movie. But I'm I love the first hour of the film now if I'm watching it as a thirty four year old. Like the I really like the pseudoscience we get in the beginning. And that's really like the interesting like the plot conceit that pulls you through the movie and the themes rest on the perceived realism of what like InGen is up to. Like we got the amber, the cloning, the frog DNA. It really adds a tantalizing element of believability to the story. And if you ever read the Crichton novels, there's like graphs and diagrams in some of the pages. Like he's like a hard sci-fi dude for better or worse. Like he got his career like in the STEM fields. Like that's what he studied in college. And he's all about that sort of shit. But here though, and I would not call G Savior hard sci-fi. I'm <laughs> not as bought into or interested in bioluminescence. I will say, under agri- underwater agriculture is a thing. Theoretically, it could be used in the fight to mitigate climate change. But G Savior's script doesn't sell me on it. It feels like fake science word salad. And for this to work, the characters need to convince me of its importance, and they just never do. I don't think there's enough passion or juice behind it. I feel like whenever they're talking about this shit, they're just going through the motions. They're just reading the script verbatim. It's not tethered enough or grounded enough to real-world concepts. So all this exposition just washes over me. And again, this is in contrast to something like Jurassic Park, where I'm just eating up, I'm eating this fake science shit for breakfast. You know what? You know what is better than a Michael Crichton helmed work, though? G-Saver, the PS2 game, is definitely better than Michael Crichton's <laughs> timeline. The game that, is, that he developed. Ah, I forgot about that little <laughs> nugget. <laughs> Sorry, I just discovered that this past week. I was reading about it. I did have a point in bringing up the PS2 game, though, which was that in our discussion last week about the PS2 game, uh, one of the things we talked about was how the game didn't really hook that much into the plot of the uh, of the movie besides, you know, mentioning the factions, Illuminati and consent and mentioning General mm-hmm. Garneau's name in passing. But that was it. That was kind of, kind of it. Didn't really even talk about much more. And you know what? I, I imagine there's a practical reason for that. Could be that the production timelines overlapped, that the Japanese mm-hmm. developers at Atelier Side did not actually have the script from you know the the <laughs> That's movie a good question we don't know right and so it's very much the possibility like they, they just wouldn't have worked out also that might just be for the best because i think the you know very conventional tropey uh you know they're building mobile dolls plot of the game probably better than this food plot <laughs> I, I like the idea i just don't like the execution yeah Right, I, I have it written in mind that it's like, I I think it's a good idea. And to your point, Stephen, with basically the entire idea being presented in one location between two people and two vials, right, there's not enough breathing room and uh, time to be interspersed within the overall conflict for this to feel like a really earned or involved resolution especially since it's oh all this stuff already happened and now we get to mix two vials together so i i I get your point uh but also i agree that it's, it's a good idea though it's definitely something different 
And uh, yeah, the, the food crisis is very smart, and it's very—it's a natural evolution of what was introduced in First Gund- Gundam. So, as opposed to what the naysayers are saying, I do think G Savior is in conversation with the greater UC timeline, and it's a natural lev- evolution on those earlier plot developments. Even if G Savior the movie won't even name drop Gundam, <laughs> right? Uh, I did also want to bring up that in the seventies and more so for Tatsunoko, since that's the majority of the 70s anime I've seen. Oh, but a lot of companies were getting into ecology and environmentalism and recycling and anti-pollution messages. I mean, that's kind of the the spurring narrative point for the entirety of Shinzo Ningen Keshan, because Breaking Boss is a robot made to heal the earth. Uh, and so it's kind of... I don't want to say poetic, but it's it's interesting that 20 years later, for the 20th anniversary of Gundam, despite Gundam starting in the 70s, 79, uh, it finally got to the point where it did an environmental message. You know, it's 20 years maybe too late, but it finally did it. So, Yeah, this came up in some of the production material, um, talking about how there was like a resurgence of environmentalism in the 90s. Maybe I'm unaware oh, of this yeah. because when I think environmentalism, I think of those early pushes in the 60s and 70s. That's what I'm most acquainted with. I'm less familiar with what was going on when I was like 10 in the 90s. No, I definitely remember a huge like recycling push in the 90s in public school. Yeah, that was definitely a thing. I remember Earth Day shit. You're right. Yeah. That was like, a big deal. Save the pandas and the, the orangutans. I once had to work at a summer camp, and it was like an academic summer camp, and because I had academic leanings, they put me as like camp counselor in charge of like this this bio program, like talking about animals and stuff. I think it was called bio, even though that doesn't track perfectly. And I learned mm. all about orangutans mm. and palm, how devastating palm seed, like trying to farm palm seed is. Oh, yeah. Uh, and... Uh, yeah, and they're native only to Borneo and Sumatra. Hmm. That's where my orangutan facts run dry. But I love orangutans. I like going to the Philly Zoo and seeing them. Some of my favorite oh. animals. Well, uh, here's another fact for you. There is no G in orangutan. Well, there's one, but there's not two. <laughs> I was like, wait a second, what? Yeah. You, th- you threw me there no. for a loop there. I- yeah. <laughs> That's that's one of those things I'm pedantic about. It's like it's orangutan. Yeah, it's not an yeah. orangutan. Yeah, that's true. But that's that, of course the tie-in to the drink tang, right? Uh, which my grandpa always loved drinking because he 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 wanted to grow up to be an astronaut, but he couldn't, and so he was like, "Well, at least I can drink what the astronauts drink." <laughs> Uh, also, I wanted to bring up as a short aside, speaking about Earth Day, if I remember the story correctly, uh, it was a husband and a wife, and one killed the other, uh, murdered the other, and buried them in their backyard, if I recall correctly. So the, thus the origins of Earth Day. Uh, <laughs> dust to dust, we all return to the Earth. <laughs> we become the cosmic force. Sorry, I've been listening to a lot of Star Wars podcasts today. Ah. <laughs> uh. All right, I want to ask you another correction because I just saw a lot of pictures of sad uh, orangutans. Uh, palm oil, not palm seed oil. Palm oil. It's terrible. Right, right, right. Destroying many rainforests. 
All right, so returning back to G. Savior, Mark urges Jack to let him see Garneau. He reaches into his jacket to grab one of the samples. Jack, thinking he's going for a gun, orders his men to open fire. The sample that hits the floor gives off a blindingly gold light, not unlike a flash grenade, which buys them some time. You know, speaking of Star Wars, a New Hope style, they jump into a trash chute and slide right into the bio-waste incinerator room. Sometimes I don't know if uh, G-Savior is doing a bit or not, because the whole film is goofy in a good way. Um, but this scene feels unintentional, but I think it does speak to the differences of characterization between Cynthia and Mark, because Cynthia slides feet first, even though she's handcuffed, into the incinerator room, while Mark goes in head first. And I think that just points out, like, or just highlights <laughs> what a goofball he is. Yeah, it is kind of funny. I mean, he, he like, delivers her into the shoot, but mm-hmm. it is kind of funny that he doesn't also go down feet first. I don't know. He has a lot of confidence in that. I will say the the foley, the sound effects for when they hit the bio waste, extremely good. It's like they had whoopee cushions in there or something. It's very funny. <laughs> that was very squishy. Yeah. Also, I don't want to gloss over the fact that it's a cadaver dumpster. Like it's just a dumpster out outside. Like I maybe I missed the part where it's an incinerator room because it seems like it's just outside, like an actual dumpster. It's a green, like re- please recycle dumpster, and there's just dead people in body bags that have been thrown down a chute into this dumpster. I I mean that's perfect B move B movie fuel. But I wonder if there's just more to that. Because they're obviously they're at kind of a military base. So I don't know if consent is just murdering all of these people. If there's more story to that. Or if these are people who have just died from starvation. That are being like scooped up Soylent Green style. Not used for Soylent Green. But just discarded like that. I, I don't know if this is just like window dressing for this movie. Or if there was something more to it, but I just, I like I said, I don't want to gloss over the fact that this is a cadaver dumpster. <laughs> yeah, the the set of facilities here, like, okay, sure, there's there's prisons at a base, that's fine, right? Like, you know, the right. military police, maybe you just gotta send people into the cell to cool down. But then, right nearby, there's a science lab. But then there's also a like morgue that has a a direct disposal for corpses because <laughs> morgue fine sure but like you know when we go when we do like a morgue scene in a, in a police procedural the mortician does not turn around and then just shake the body into a trash chute <laughs> right and this also speaks to mark's naivete because he's like yeah i'm gonna go tell general garneau about all these issues and he's gonna do the right thing yeah mm-hmm. speaking of garneau on the phone with Garneau, Jack reports his failure. He also frames Mark for the murder of the security guard, which he oversaw, question mark, ordered, question mark, committed. Do we get an on-screen confirmed death here? I mean, we know he's dead. Do oh, we know, who uh, does it? Or Yeah. I don't think so. I don't yeah. know. I'm going to assume it's Jack. Yeah. He, he probably does his own dirty work. I, I want to say in that scene, he was holding a pistol. But yeah. I think it's right. Yeah. 
I want you to use whatever means necessary to capture them, Colonel. Understood. Garneau orders. As if we didn't already know, Garneau is a bad dude with certain proclivities. The camera pans to the right, revealing a scantily clad young woman wearing a consent officer's hat, cutting a figure reminiscent of an SS commandant. So I did some research here, because immediately I thought of, like, exploitation films from the 1970s, and apparently there's a bunch of these, like, Canadian-made in the 1970s and 1980s. Ilsa, sorry, I lost my train of thought there. Ilsa, She-Wolf of the SS is a very famous film uh, featuring a, a dressed-up SS officer who, you know, it's an ex- exploitation film, so the imagery is very in-your-face, very gruesome, mm-hmm. very bloody. But it's a low-budget Canadian grindhouse flick. And I'm sure, because, of course, the production crew is all based in Canada, I'm sure a lot of the people at Polestar Entertainment were familiar with the movie. She also gives off, like, villainous Bond girl, like a clear signifier that Garneau is no good. Unfortunately, we don't have the time in this film for for Mark Kern to, you know, persuade her to, you know, change her evil ways only for her to tragically die. (laughs) (laughs) On a similar note, I feel that the consent uniforms are the most outwardly fascist in the UC timeline. Like even more so than Xeon officers' uniforms. They like they look like SS soldiers or Mussolini's black shirts, which I think is purposeful. I think they're really similar to the Titans from Zeta Gundam. I would be curious. I haven't actually done the the side by side of it, but I think if you looked at like you know Jared's dress uniform or. Or, you know, Bascom or Jamaican or any of those, Jamatov, any of those clowns. They probably yep. <laughs> have pretty similar dress uniforms to what we see Jack and Garneau have. Yeah, it's, I have to go back and look because it's the hats especially here that, like, scream SS officer. Well, it's it's the hats and it's also the fact that, and going to the, uh, was it the AU suits? It's the, well, the Titans, excuse me. It's the fact that their base color is black. Yeah. Which doesn't really happen very often for other Xeon outfits. You know, usually it's green or, you know, Char's red or purples, but to have it just be black and then having the real world kind of military insignias on it also adds that level of uh, association, historical association with it, where I definitely feel that's coming from. I have I had written down that to me, they kind of feel the most Xeon.jpg of the Xeon suits. <laughs> But and we see further in the movie when they have a different outfit on. Those are textbook SS uniforms. Well, not SS, but they're definitely like you know Reiki feeling suits. But yeah, these well, they they're not perhaps distinct in their Xeonness. They are definitely distinct in their real world fascist counterparts. Absolutely. Yeah, this is when the the subtext becomes text. <laughs> And uh, speaking of, like, Yasuhiko has talked about his design decisions uh, when it came to making the characters for First Gundam. And he had the German military apparatus on his mind, but he was thinking more to, like, Prussian uniforms here. Mm. And, you know, it's a very smart visual move, too, when you're talking about Zeta Gundam and the Titans to um, make their uniforms more distinctly fascist. It's a, it's a nice visual touch. Mm-hmm. Mark and Cynthia make their way outside to Sturge's airbase. Using the UC-0223 equivalent of a payphone, man, this is such a 90s film, Mark calls Mimi. Word travels fast. She immediately asks him if he killed a congressional. 
And because of this, Mimi was forced to take a leave of absence. Recognizing Mark's in trouble, she asked for his location. Yeah, the pay video phone is so good. What <laughs> what an optimistic thing to think that you would be able to access communications like that in public. And also, I bet you, too, in the logic of the scriptwriter, this is like the equivalent. You know how using pay phones is often a way to like make a call without being traced or whatever in a lot of mm. films? I bet you they're thinking that way, too. Even though now... Like in in twenty twenty three, would be like, well, it would attach to your ID somehow, like, or you know, something like that. Like, you wouldn't be able to just do this and, and not get traced. Um, mm-hmm. Very funny. I, I this is this is perfect. <laughs> Meanwhile, Cynthia joyfully reunites with Franz Dieter, Dieter, an intern, and Kobe, her assistant. They had Ill- infiltrated the hydro rig along with Cynthia, but they managed to escape. They got to Earth using an abandoned space station, which they rigged to survive re-entry. Don't know how the hell they pulled that off, but um, be that as it may, I just want to say this. <laughs> this, is, this is coming from a former intern. I hope that Cynthia is paying Franz, and hopefully paying Kobe to her assistant. Uh, unpaid internships are such a scam. Doubly, triply so if the intern is being asked to infiltrate underwater installations <laughs> and break his boss out of prison I, like, I know he's ideologically focused like he, he believes in the cause but still he better be getting paid another gundam note to make is that uh, this is a very multiracial film uh you know much like white base was a very international cast we now have a crew of of people that are definitely i think not only you know are they just looking at their faces you know being you know placed from all over the world uh their names also sort of contrast a little bit too uh mm. you know uh franz dieter is played by, by alfonso quijada who who i think looks like a more latino man but is you know named franz dieter uh mm. you know kobe i wasn't sure where to place the name kobe because my first thought was like kobe japan k-o-b-e the character's name is k-o-b-i which uh, that spelling is more commonly uh, named for Israeli men. Like most of the famous people named K-O-B-I are, are Israeli men, as an example. Uh, but mm. like, a, you know, given names get spelled in all different sorts of ways. Like that's that's not anything particularly interesting. But I definitely think there's like a little bit of that. I don't know, you know, where that's coming from, if, if that's meant to be Gundam or if that's just how they're doing this production here. Uh, but it's definitely, I, I mean, I would like to believe that, hey, that's what Gundam's about. And they're going to have it in this film as well. It does seem somewhat intentional. And I just noticed really just the 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 racial component. You know, the like just face to face like you were saying. And it's like, yeah, this is a diverse Gundam cast, which A is just good because it's good to have a whole bunch of different people in a neat movie. But then it also just just tracks with the future and uh yeah, just what Gundam's got going on, so, and of course, too. I mean, we'll, we'll I'll mention it now. We'll talk more about the relationship itself as it forms in the back half of the film on the, on the next episode. But you know, we do have a a you know a multi racial couple that is the sort of you know the main the main leads of the film. That's right. That's a good point. And I feel like um, the diversity is great, but I also feel like the characters are pigeonholed into very stereotypical portrayals. Like, they're allowed to just be, which is nice. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which I also feel like G-Saver doesn't get enough credit for. 
especially compared to other Gundam shows, which tends to uh, trade in these cliches. Mm. Now face to face, General Garneau upbraids Jack. He orders him to interrogate all of Mark's friends on the rig. Jack expresses his belief that Mimi could be useful here, but she wasn't at her apartment when his men swung by. Yo, this set! Garneau's office! It's just <laughs> full of shit. It's great. Like, it's just... If you if you had any doubts in your mind about the sort of person that Garneau was before, and they should have been dispersed or dispelled by the the you know the she wolf of the ss but in case in case that wasn't enough you have this in which he is just you know clinging to all these various images of power and 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 you know and not not soft power you know these are all very martial so i i think uh it's just you know it's it, it it's storytelling it's straightforward but uh, you know it is what it is speaking of Oh, go on. There was I, I swear it was an Italian movie I had watched recently. Maybe it wasn't. But the there's a similar character who's just like, this is my war room with tons of weapons and cool junk. And then the end of the movie is the hero is at the guy's house. And he's like, well, we're going to fight now. I'm going to kill you. They end up in his weapon war room. And then the climax of the movie is just them each grabbing different weapons just continuously throughout the fight and then fighting together. Uh, it may have been something that Red Letter Media was talking about because I don't think I actually watched this movie. But it still may have been Italian. <laughs> but uh, Same kind of vibe where it's just like all this war everywhere. But then of course, for the villain in this movie, uh, which I don't know the name of, he's hoisted by that petard and he is killed by his own war room. But it is it is a good just over the top vibe for your bad guy, and I, I yeah I appreciate it too. It's it's a good look. I wanna I wanna deep dive into all of these different artifacts. I want like Andor style. Like I want <laughs> Luthen to walk me through what he's selling here. This is some cool shit. Even that would like blunt the momentum of the storytelling. I still want like a very indulgent scene where it's just like look at this weapon, look at this weapon, look at this weapon, or look mm. at this cultural artifact. I'm curious what he has in here. Maybe it's like uh, like old zombie stuff. Like, you know how obsessed Ooh. they were with like Hitler? Yeah. Maybe some German artifacts. He, he has Makuve's vase. <laughs> yeah, that'd be a nice touch. Lay ding. So we're nearing the end of the, the segment of the film that we're covering in our conversation today. But we're not done quite just yet. Umbrella in hand. Mimi arrives at the airbase. Mimi shares a congressional report that somebody tried to bury that supports Dr. Reva's research. The conversation is suddenly interrupted by two boogoos stomping across the airfield looking for them. To evade detection, the fivesome duck into a hangar. Their plan? To commandeer a transport to New Manhattan. After a dick-measuring contest between Mark and Dieter, with Mark at the helm, the gang blast off into space. I want to talk about a scene before they get on the spaceship. Uh, they have a moment where they stop in a uh, like a hallway f- full of mobile suits that they're surprised to find and identify them as Reed suits, which are kind of like the the enemy grunt suit that we'll see some of later. These also show up a lot in the PS2 game as well. There's a bunch of Reeds mm. uh, in there as well, and um, you know I, I think I've seen a few comments that people feel that the number of Mobile suits is inadequate in this movie, and really, upon rewatching, I I think 
that criticism needs to be tempered to say that there's not enough mobile suit combat is probably what these people are really saying because mm. as we've talked about throughout this conversation we get a lot of mobile suits we get the rescue the disassembly the you know at a social function at the military base stomping around on patrol you know i think there's a lot of mobile suits in this film and i think they're they're kind of saving you know the the violence for later so to speak but they're present throughout yes absolutely and then in this scene in particular when those two boogoos well one of them's already walking around and the other just comes in like a paratrooper and slams on the ground I'm almost certain I screamed when this happened because it's it's so well done. Like I know I might be in the minority that at least as far as Gundam, not all Gundam, but some of it, like for the origin, for example, and in G Savior, when it's done right, and it usually is, also with MS Igloo, sometimes your 3D CG mobile suits function a little bit better than their 2D counterparts. Especially after a certain era, like digital era and beyond, yeah, I'd probably give it to the 3D CG robots. But there is definitely, especially in your 90s, you get a lot of really, really good stuff with your hand-drawn robots as well. But uh, well, first off, with the, with the boogoos walking around, it feels so labored, you know, and it feels like it's a big deal to pilot this robot. It feels so heavy. And as I mentioned previously, the camera is at eye level with our our characters. And so things not just look tall, but they're distorted because of your vanishing points and uh, whatnot. And I, I just liked that it was, you got that supreme sense of mass and height. And uh, the, like I said, low slung cameras. But also for that second boogoo that flies in, the camera is focused on one, but then it you know, haphazardly, it just swings up to the boogoo that's coming down and that vernier blast out of its feet, followed by it slamming down like a paratrooper, camera shaking. I'm all about it. It was such a well choreographed and composed scene. And yeah, more of that. Yeah, the boogoo is a fun grunt mech. I'm looking forward to, because I can't remember all the scenes that shows up in later on, but I'm looking forward to future fights featuring the boogoo. And then really, the the MS hangar, as we had talked to a little bit earlier, I'm always good with that as a trope in robot shows. Just, oh no, it's the hangar of a hundred to a thousand mysterious robots that have been secretly been building underground. Like, I know there was uh, NW79 in wherever they were in, I think, of South America, that that Federation base where all the GMs, in the same kind of position, really, they, they were being constructed in that underground base where uh, I think the three orphans uh, may have walked across them. I don't know. It's also yeah, they been find the bombs years. That, that these commandos have planted on the gyms, yeah. Okay. And uh, it's, like I said, similar kind of scenes, similar kind of energy where it's like, these are the next generation mobile suits. And yeah, always, always 100% down for just that storytelling and visual trope. I'm glad G-Savior had its own example of it. 
Unless you're thinking of the origin when you got that sick scene when like 50 gyms start marching. PMC always refers to it as <laughs> oh, the, yeah, march, of the, the march of the gyms. Oh yeah, the march of the gyms. And I mean, and mm. that version of the of the Jabro sequence in the the origin manga is is very fun. That's to me that is one of the. If I had like a top five reasons that we should animate the rest of the origin, that's one of them. Hmm. Yeah. Well, this this brings us to the end. I, I called my shot here. We made the right calls. We spent over two and a half hours talking about this very good film. We'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll go to bat for G Saver even more in our second half of our episode. But we, you listeners and fellow podcasters, we have that to look forward to. This is a great breaking point because if G Savior, my heart be still, if G Savior were a 49 episode Gundam show, this would be our midway point. This is when our characters are blasting off into space. And the mm. second half is its own distinct entity, which I can't wait to dive into with y'all. Well, Bob, uh, well, do we have more to talk to about this? Or because there's a few things I don't want to let go oh yeah jump in andy uh well there's speaking more to mark's goofiness shall we Mm. say there's there's two lines i love that he's done for these scenes uh when they're talking about how they got to earth and that how they got into the rig mark asks franz how'd you get the plans to my rig we bought them on the black market and then there's just that beat that extra long beat and then mark just goes Nice. <laughs> I don't know if he's actually excited that they were able to get them at all or that there still is a black market that they can use. But I, I love his energy, just the genuine, warm, nice. <laughs> and then when they're on the ship, uh, I think you had the uh, in your notes, the dick measuring contest <laughs> yeah. before they blast off. So 90s. Yes. Um his excuse for having his heated words with Franz were, I just said all that because I hate sitting in the back seat. Again, this guy, am I right? <laughs> yeah, G Savior needs a laugh track. Uh, maybe. <laughs> Put Sometimes. that as an extra. <laughs> yeah. That would be a great extra. I feel like fans should do that. Fans <laughs> added there's... subtitles to G Savior, now add a laugh track. There are there are plenty of moments where it could work. Is there then, an example of a mecha show with a laugh track? Probably not, right? I don't know. Does Megas XLR have a laugh track? No, and I was thinking uh, Zabungle probably would be a good one for it. Yeah. But. <laughs> All right, my friends. We have, we have podcasted a lot about G-Savior. I can't wait to continue this journey into, to next next week when we cover the back half of G Savior. Andy, do you have any closing thoughts? How? What are your excitement levels for the rest of the film? Oh, I mean, having already seen it, of course, um, I really enjoyed a lot of what the second half gives. You know, that the second half has a lot of drama honestly to it. It involves an entire other faction. We're not at we're not ever going to reach Gundam Wing levels where there are 13 different factions <laughs> all at once. We at least have three or four, I guess, including the neutrals. But uh, in the second half, we are introduced to our titular robot, our titular mobile suit, and our our battle over uh, Gaia. And 
I mean, I'm excited to rewatch that second half of the film to take my notes simply to see that battle again because I'll be I'll be waxing poetic and gushing about that in due time because I I think that's great. Yeah, we haven't even talked about the G Savior itself yet, and that design slaps. It does. I am I am pining. I will pine every day since like a week ago, I guess. It'll be last Saturday when I watched the movie. I will pine every day as I pine for like Half-Life 3. Now finally knowing how, where those stories converge uh, for a master grade of the G-Savior. I, I only get master grades for kits or uh, I only get master grades for mobile suits I really deeply care about. And I want a master grade of the G-Savior. <laughs> PMC, hit me with some thoughts. Hit me with some closing PMC thoughts. I think that this film does, uh, you know, I think it's, it serves its characters first and foremost, and I think we've seen that set up. We wouldn't be able to do, have all of the dramatic payoffs that we have in the back half of the film with with uh, Mark and Mimi and Jack and Garneau. Uh, that you know without without doing this work here so i think they have done a very efficient work with the characters and it's going to pay off next week yeah one thing i'll say as a closing thought i've seen a lot of people who like g saver a lot they really want like an animated follow-up ova or an ova to reanimate the material that the film doesn't cover and you know what it wouldn't have the same charm. Just give me more live-action g saver most of the actors are still with us brendan elliott can certainly use a paycheck Give us more filmed G-Saviors. Where are the characters in 20 years? I want that warmth, which I feel you could only capture with the snark, with the real-life actors, with the, I'll say, atmosphere of celluloid film. There is definitely, as I was thinking about this watching the film, and one of the examples I had in my head is how the Xeon suits... They do work, but they don't feel necessarily distinct as Xeon suits. And one of the reasons is you're trying to do what everyone acknowledges as anime, or at least anime first. And trying to incorporate that in live action for any title, really, doesn't always necessarily work. You know, the the Wachowskis were able to nail that with Speed Racer. I think that's Mm. the perfect example of meshing the two together and making it work. Oh, excuse me. But G Savior, while it doesn't necessarily feel like animated Gundam, it's because it's not. Right. It has its own things it brings to the table simply by being a Canadian live action production of this material. And it's unique because of that. And I also feel like it's special because of that. So, right. Like, I'm curious about reading the. There, there wasn't a manga of G Savior, or was there? Well, there wasn't a manga of the film. There's no manga adaptation of the film. However, right. there is a like three volume manga of the PS2 game. It doesn't cover the entire game, but it okay. partially adapts story beats from the PS2 game. Okay, so I think maybe the manga covers I'm thinking of might be for the novelization. I'm not entirely sure, but those, those manga covers, covers are fantastic. They're so good, but. Like, even that is like, I, I like that, but I don't think I necessarily want more of that. Because then you're trying to put G-Savior into kind of an environment where I don't think it necessarily belongs, right? I think it needs to stay the so far until Legendary finally does what they're going to do. 
so far the only live action Gundam. And it's, yeah, yeah, I think we just need to keep with what makes it unique and go forward that way. Yeah, totally. As much as I like the art, it's, it's Brendan Elliott or bust. <laughs> Put that on a t-shirt. It's the only way forward. All right, Andy, hit us with some promotions at the end of all things. Uh, hmm, okay. Well, I am, of course, at Enginevere, E-I-G-I-N-V-I-R. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. I uh, have other, I was going to say mobile suits. I have other social medias, but uh, I think Twitter's okay for now. If if you if I die there and you can't find me, uh, maybe I'll drop those next time. Uh, the Big O Archive is my lifelong passion project, which may sound sad, but it's true. Uh, go there, check it out, learn something new about Big O, because unless you're like me or the people who have already visited, I guarantee you there's going to be something there that you did not know previously. Uh, hopefully there will be some new things. I say that every time. I've said that three times now. There's going to be something new. There's not anything new yet. That's just me being lazy. Uh, and that's really all of my internet presence, I guess. Uh, keep an eye on the Internet Archive. Uh, it's on the dubs, Time Forgot, uh, uh, the tag, I guess you would call it, for more French. Oh, we haven't talked about that yet, so feel free to cut that out. We're bringing that up next time. Uh, so yeah, that's all of my internet presence. Uh, you can come and see me scream about uh, anything I feel like screaming about on Twitter. Of course, you'll be able to find those links in the show notes on whatever platform you are listening to this podcast on. So please, you know, get, give Andy a follow. Check out the Big O archive. Learn things about the Big O. I recommend it. It's a good time. Go back and listen to our coverage about the Big O. We had Andy on for a bunch of episodes and a bunch of other very cool guests. <laughs> Uh, I, I definitely think it was a pretty good time. Speaking of things that we are up to, if you want to help us out, give us a review. You can do so on your podcast platform of choice. Uh, we're an independent podcast, not part of any network or anything. So we are relying on word of mouth and our incessant, incessant posting habits to get the word out there about what we do. What else are we up to? Uh, we will be right. Uh, so right now we're in the middle of GCA coverage in the future. Uh, we are working on some other things. I think our next big project will be the hot summer of Gunbuster, accompanying the new Gunbuster release that's going to be coming out soon. Uh, so definitely, you know, look forward to that. Get excited! We have, we have, we will be announcing a full slate of incredible guests for that. So we are super, super excited to be getting into that. Besides that, we also have a Patreon, Patreon.com/slash/GiantRobotFM, where you can support us. We have a patron exclusive Discord. We have a $5 tier where we are getting ready to return to patron-exclusive coverage of Mobile Suit Gundam, The Witch from Mercury, uh, which we will be covering on a week-to-week basis as it airs, uh, also with some fun guests who that we are, we're working on filling out that lineup, uh, however many episodes there are, which we'll also find out on a week-to-week basis as it goes forward. Uh, that'll be that'll be exciting, uh, but that will be starting. You know, so that'll be the uh, I believe the first episode will be April 9th, Easter. Suleta will resurrect somebody from the dead on Easter Sunday, and then we will podcast about it shortly thereafter. <laughs> usually, usually by the following Wednesday, uh, we'll try. It, it's things can be flexible, but that that is the general plan. Uh, we also have a, another patron exclusive podcast called Simulator where we do coverage of mecha video games the same way that we do mecha anime. 
we've put some of those episodes on the free feed. So if you're curious what that's like, you can listen to the Armored Core episodes. There's also a Zardian episode on the main feed. Uh, currently, exclusive to patrons are some episodes covering Front Mission, as well as the soon-to-be-recorded and released episode on Frame Gride. Uh, and then we have exciting plans beyond that. We, we're, it's going to be a hot Front Mission summer, uh, working on some things like Gun Hazard and 2, you know, hopefully to be around the expected release of the Front Mission 2 remake this summer. We'll see. Uh, but yeah, so look forward to all those things. Uh, I want to give credit to Dwarf S for the graphics that we use and credit to Fretzel, hashtag Bane Fretzel, for the music that we use. And I'll end this with the phrase that Andy so wonderfully coined. This guy, Mark Curran, am I right? <laughs> <laughs>